century doing something mean to it do it better than anybody you ever seen do it screams from the haters got a nice ring to it i guess every superhero need his theme music no one man should have all that all right Welcome to the Skits, uh, 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. I am your Schizoid host, Cooper Cherry, and today we have Andrew Stamper joining us. Andrew does a little uh, screenwriting as a hobby, so we're going to talk a little bit about what his creative process is like, uh, maybe some inspiration behind that, and uh, might just geek out on a little bit of film, because uh, we're both big fans of storytelling and stories, so Andrew, welcome Welcome to the Schizoid Podcast, man. Thank you very much. So uh, what I'd kind of like to start off with today is maybe maybe give us a little bit of insight into how you got into writing or maybe just storytelling or, or maybe just, you know, kind of what film, what about film kind of gripped you? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I started really when it comes to storytelling, it was something that I kind of took from my grandfather, who was very much a classical storyteller, just just through word of mouth, nothing really like writing down, but it was always a very, very strong storyteller. And it was something that as far back as I can remember, that was something I always really enjoyed, which was just telling stories. And I guess when I was around like eight years old, I realized very young that probably wasn't going to cut it as a professional baseball player (laughs) that uh, maybe uh, pursue something else that uh, would work a little bit better. And that's really what it came to from from the moment I could read and write. I was really, really attracted to to telling some type of narrative, and um, it just really grew from that. And um, probably around that same time, I saw uh, Ghostbusters, uh, oh, nice. for the, yeah, for the first time, and I'm like, yeah, I think I want to do that. I think <laughs> I, I think I want to I want to write movies, and just kind of grown from a very young age and. Uh, fortunately for me, I always had a family that that kind of cultivated that and encouraged uh, writing and storytelling as a whole for me. Nice. Um, I would say probably, man, what really gripped me, as cliche as it sounds, is Star Wars. Okay. That's the yeah. first thing that really captured captured my imagination as a kid. I mean, that just kind of blew my mind. And that's where kind of my fascination with film began. Yeah. But I don't think I was uh, ready to delve into like writing at, at quite that age i mean i definitely loved stories and loved to read mm-hmm. at that point yeah i don't think i really thought about i never thought about screenwriting as even a possibility until mm-hmm. like much later into college <laughs> yeah yeah um uh i think uh I, I think you like have a very similar mindset that a lot of you know young when we're when we're younger you know we i mean star wars is i think that movie for for I think most guys right. uh, of our but, age group, yeah, yeah, definitely, and it was just a brilliant story that um, that we all kind of just fell in love with. And when it comes to, sorry, I got a little. Sorry, we're good. Yeah, uh, roll back a little bit. Okay. Um, you were saying Star Wars. Yeah, so Star Wars was probably my f- the first film or movie that really grabbed my attention, and I just fell in love with the original trilogy. That was always something that, I mean, I could watch over and over and over again. Yeah, the 
Especially the original trilogy. I yeah. Think. Oh, yeah. yes, of course. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, like you, uh, Star Wars, I mean, four or five years old, I thought I was right. Luke Skywalker, um, which I think every boy can definitely relate to. Right. Um, and those stories, classic hero's journey, um, you know, just, I mean, going back as far as like storytelling goes from like Gilgamesh, I mean, um, George Lucas just did a great job of really like like uh, harnessing and doing a great job of like telling the, that that classic hero's journey, and um, it's yeah one of like the, one of the more perfect uh, films, certainly one of the more perfect trilogies that uh, that were around. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting. It's kind of like a mixture of sort of like there's some Eastern influences in terms of the Force and even the costuming. You know, like Darth Vader's helmet, like he's kind of a modeled on the uh, samurai armor and things like that. But I also believe, and I'm not as schooled in the history of it, but sort of the, uh, I guess the episodic sort of Western, you know what I mean? The uh, kind of like the large scale, like Western Mm -hmm. kind of vibe. A little space, Western space opera. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So did you actually start, like, did you write, start writing scripts when you were like eight, nine, ten? So I, I started with plays for the most part. Uh, there was, shoot, and now I'm completely losing his name, but I uh, I saw another movie, uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs, which is, oh, Neil Simon. So he did, you know, just kind of told story of, uh, you know, uh, World, War, uh, World War II stories of like this Jewish family in New York. And... Um, I loved the movie, and I, I I read the I read the other plays like Biloxi Blues and other things that he had done, and that's really where my my writing start process started. It wasn't necessarily in screenplays because I didn't really really know there was much of a difference in how the stories were told, but right. uh, but finding play access was was pretty easily um, accessible. So read a lot of uh, Neil Simon works and just kind of kind of honed in on that. I'm like, okay. I can I can do this. I basically just write dialogue. I got this. Didn't really have it. And of course, Neil Simon is a brilliant uh, writer in his own right. Um, but that was that was really the first thing that got me started in actually putting pen to paper. Did you participate in theater as a youngster as well, or? So, I am terrified <laughs> of uh, performing. Um, sure. I mostly got into drama and things of that nature, but really only because there were girls uh, involved <laughs> and just the ability to be in the same room as a girl. Um, that That's really why I did it. But like performing, I was cast in a couple plays. I don't even know if I ever like actually performed um, in any of these plays, but um, I remember getting a couple parts whether those part anything ever happened with those parts. I don't, I, I think I completely blocked that out of my childhood <laughs> because I was probably that bad of an actor. Nice. Uh, yeah. I mean, one thing, so I grew up in kind of rural Texas, not a lot of access to that sort of thing until, you know, when you get in high school, there's one act play, which is, kind of, but I don't know, for some reason I didn't go out for it. I don't know. It's kind mm-hmm. of, I'm kind of kicking myself for not participating in that. Right. I think I probably could have, you know, I mean, that would have might have opened doors. Very but, well, could have, yeah. Um, but hmm, where in a not to turn it around, but where in a rural uh, Texas was this? So it, it's actually it's probably about an hour and fifteen minutes to the southeast. I grew up in a uh, Muldoon, Texas. Okay, um, which is like you know what I mean. There's only a post office there. Mm-hmm. 
um, there's not actually a school, so I went to school is so there's another smaller or small town, but it's bigger than than Muldoon is, uh, Flatonia. Um, so it's like I ten pretty much and ninety Highway ninety five, or so. Mm-hmm. So that's where I went to school, kindergarten through through twelfth grade. And I mean, it was a pretty like your school. Is- yeah, we're like a one A one A school, so you know, less than two hundred people okay. in the entire high school. Yeah. One one big campus. There was no like. Yeah, I mean, there's separate buildings for junior high, high school, and elementary, but all on one campus. Mm-hmm. Um, similar similar experience. Um, I I I grew up in a very small island, uh, Bermuda, and and I did some schooling there. And I think when I was my sophomore year of high school, I was one of I want to say twelve uh, students. Oh damn. Yeah. Uh, but I also um, kind of lived in the States as well. My parents were divorced, so I, I'd spend some school years yeah. in Bermuda, some school years in the States. And I went to a, a much larger school in southwest part of Florida called Naples. And it was kind of like 90210 down there. And <laughs> um, a very, very elaborate uh, drama program versus where when I was in uh, school in Bermuda where we, we didn't have uh, that type of program. There were other schools, but where I went to was just a very small school on the island. But um and we had great, you know, we had great actors and great, uh, great drama program and, and had some really good teachers that helped me with my writing and helped me develop a little bit, but I was a terrible, terrible student. Um, I was more interested in more like the social aspect as opposed to actually being disciplined and doing something. So when you talked about like, could have opened up some doors for yourself, you know, for me, probably better discipline would have been able to do something. I did a, a slight detour when I realized that I wasn't quite getting where I wanted to. I said, all right, I'm just going to go ahead and join the Navy because they had a co- occupation were uh, of journalists. So join the Navy so I could be a journalist. I'm like, all right, I can still write. I saw full metal jacket. This seems <laughs> easy. Um, and that's what I did. And for five years, I just wrote uh, stories like that and continued to work on some plays, but still didn't really get into out and out screenwriting until I would get out of the Navy. But at least the Navy gave me the opportunity to continue to develop and write um, stories just more on like the, the feature writing uh, basis. Right on. So uh, journalistic, did you kind of do, I mean, was it kind of human interest ma- geared or? Yeah, very much human interest. Um, I'm not going to say that it's all just kind of like, you know, uh, pup pieces, but um, I mean, that a lot of it is just really, you know, personality features and, you know, uh, not really investigative journalism. You know, the Navy right. isn't going to hire you yeah, to, exactly. to do uh, works like that, but, you know, wrote some really good feature stories that uh, whether it was about different commands for sporting things or um, uh, air commands and things, you know, it, it was a great experience and just allowed me that opportunity. But yeah, it was, it was pretty soft, soft writing and that, you know, you know, looking back on it. And you said you were in for what, five years? Yeah. So, uh, for five years kind of went all over, which was again, another opportunity to really lend itself for, um, the development of my writing, just seeing different cultures and, uh, going through the Mediterranean and then, uh, the middle East and, uh, spending time, uh, out there. And of course, just spending any extended amount of time on a, a military ship for a couple of years will definitely brighten your horizons <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I have a I have a buddy that actually just got out not long not long ago, and he's an he was an air traffic controller for the Navy. Yeah, uh, I think he was in Bahrain for a while. Yeah, spent a week there. 
in like 2011, 12, something like that. But he just got out and moved to Vegas. He got an FAA job finally. Awesome. He had been over in Riyadh actually (laughs) on a compound for like a year or two uh, because he was getting paid like he was getting over six figures Mm -hmm. just to sit there and work and like almost no taxes. So he was kind of like, eh. Got to, got to do it. <laughs> yeah, change it to a wrong career path. And some good money. Um, but so, what? When did you actually start actually like sitting down and writing with you know a, a film sort of screenplay in yeah. mind? Yeah. Um, when I really, really said, "This is what I want to focus on. This is what I want to do. I want to. I want not just plays or you know uh, playwriting, but screenplays." Um, I was, I want to say I was about 20 years old. I was convinced that I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be the next Quentin Tarantino. No big deal. You know, uh, I got this. I can tell a story, whatever. <laughs> um, so I just, I just started writing and, um, I thought, you know, that I, I knew what I was doing, you know, I'm like, I'm going to read a couple books, get an idea. Um, Sid Fields. Exactly. <laughs> probably the, you know, uh, Robert McKee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Story. Um, <laughs> And, uh, I mean, there, yeah. So I'm like, yeah, read a couple books. I got this. Um, but of course completely didn't really have any idea of what I was doing. Uh, but fortunately when I was in undergrad, I had the opportunity to work with, um, uh, Jeffrey Stepakoff, who brilliant, brilliant writer. He, um, was like an executive producer for Dawson's Creek and he, he's written a lot of other, a lot of other things. And he was my, my screenwriting, um, teacher when I was in my undergrad school and uh he really helped me to kind of understand what story is and not just what what you read and like oh this is what a screen this is what a screenplay is supposed to be these are what the beats are supposed to be but actually understanding drama and understanding conflict and understanding you know um the whole concept of you know intention and obstacle and just trying to figure figure out that and understand what your characters are and at the end of the day, this is what it's about. It's about your character. It's about it's about trying to find what that journey is, and that's that's when it really really began. And that's when, as a result of it, I just continued to uh, uh, write and work on my craft and, and get better. So, can we can we can I you elaborate a little bit on? In turn, I think you're you're onto a nugget that I'm kind of curious about. Just sort of the like the important parts of story that do you have? Can you kind of unpack that a little bit for us? Um, well, obviously, you know, when you, when you watch a story, I mean, you have your, your traditional plots, right? You have your, your, your whole act break, but that's not really what, what a story is. That's not, that that's not your meat and potatoes. I mean, that's just like a, a frame. What it all really comes down to is, what are you telling the story about? Is it, is it about people? And usually it should be, unless you're doing a science, science fiction. And if you are fantastic, but, and there are their own rules for that, but by and large, you're, you're telling a story about people. Even star Wars is about people and you have to understand what, what, what is it that they want and what is the forces of antagonism going against them? What is the obstacle? Um, to borrow the phrase from uh, that from uh, Jeffrey Stepakoff, put your characters through hell. Understand what that hell is for them, and that's 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 what it is. And if you can understand what your character wants, and you understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish, as long as their forces of antagonism are as equal uh, equally formidable, 
then you have something. You've got an idea of, of where you want to go with this. And then you can go ahead and unpackage it. And that's where other things were like Christopher Vogler with, uh, with writer's journey. And, uh, when they talk about, you know, um, the, the, the different arcs of the screenplay, as far as like, you know, um, getting to the, the, the different levels of drama and, um, you can go ahead and, and delve into that, but it really all comes back to, and it always will. And it always, you know, it always should be just what is uh, what you're, what, what's the intention of your character and what's the obstacle that they're going to face. It might be smart for us to sort of break down um, a little bit about the basics of screenwriting and even just film in general in terms of, you know what I mean, the three-act structure. I don't think many people realize even the basics of, of things like that, you know what I mean? So you have what I guess, so our character starts out, there's something happens, a challenge of some kind. Yeah, I mean, we, we've already started with Star Wars, so I mean, right. we, you can, yeah, even, we can kind of yeah, exemplify you, it through that. Like, yeah, you can break down Star Wars and I mean... Uh, we'll use the traditional three act, right? I mean, your, your opening act is we're, we're introduced to this, we're introduced to Luke Skywalker and it's like, all right, he's just this farm boy looking off to his, you know, his, uh, what is it? A couple stars, um, and, or a couple moons, whatever it is. And, you know, dreaming about something important for himself and he's in his ordinary world. And that is what we usually call your, your first act, that ordinary world. And still within that, that same first act, something happens. And in this case, he loses a robot that, you know, like, all right, he goes, finds this robot. And it's like, no, I'm looking for this guy, Obi-Wan Kenobi. All right, fine. He finds Obi-Wan Kenobi. Still nothing crazy is really going on. So we're still in that ordinary world. But we're un we unlock this, this video of, uh, or this hologram of Princess Leia saying, hey, I need you, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. My, my family's in peril. You know, come. You're the only person that can help me. And then Obi-Wan Kenobi, as that, that, um, you know, that um, uh, sage or mage or whatever they call it, uh, looks at Luke and says, hey, you, you know, you got to come. And Luke's like, eh, no, I can't. I got, you know, I'm, I'm, I live on the farm. I got to go ahead and, you know, um, do all that crap. And um, you have that that resistance uh, to the call. You, that, that's one of the first things it's going to call in a film. We also like to call it as an inciting incident. You know, that that moment where, your hero is like, no, I can't do that, but something's going to happen and change it. And then it leads to a conversation. Oh, shoot, I got to go check on my my aunt and uncle. And what happens? They're dead. Well, now Luke has nothing left in this world. So that's going to take us into that second act where we're going to be introduced to other characters, other people that are friends and allies, and then also potential enemies. It's going to um, create that arc within that story. And that's like your the bulk of what the film is is that second arc but that most important is that first arc where you're you're setting up what the stakes are going to be you're introduced to who are going to have who's who are we going to have to save why do we care about these people in this case it's princess leia and quite frankly the entire galaxy um and so your second act you you run through it and you go through the different tests and challenges of that film and which will then lead you into the that 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 the cave, if you will, that that deep dark uh, moment, and then only when you get out of that will it lead you into that third and final act of the film, which is your final challenge. In that case, it's very very literal what that final challenge is. It's we got to blow up this Death Star. Or it's going to blow up our planet, and of course, you have the um, the the destruction of the Death Star. Sorry for those who haven't seen it. Uh -huh. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, good does win in, in that case. And then 
but that's your your three act structure in the end is you know you have your ordinary world um and your refusal of the call and then the acceptance of the call and then you move into that second act which is that 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 friends and allies and the the the, the meeting of new worlds and uncovering and uh the other mysteries which leads into like the deep the deep dark uh, deep dark cave and then you close out with that that final resolution and the conflict of the the final act do you find yourself i think i run into this issue when you know i mean when you're so aware of that sort of three act paradigm do you find yourself i i find myself getting really bored with a lot of main mainstream or more popular sure film and television because they follow that form so slavishly you can sort of predict it and you know what i mean it's just it can get really it can be it can be done well yeah i'm not going to lie but I feel like I tend to enjoy films that really play with that, or writers, I think, that really play with with the unexpected and maybe, you know, take that bare bones of a three-act and really turn it on its head I mean, and you, create something really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you kind of have to now. I mean, you, you have far more uh, of an educated viewer uh, these days that may may have existed. I mean, there's so much content. that's true, right? I mean, so much more content that, we've ha- that we have now that didn't necessarily exist um, and so to keep the audience's attention now, you have to do something a little bit different, um, at the, at the root of it, it's still, it's still the same thing, but it's, how are you telling that story? What are you doing? What, uh, the rules are always going to be in place, but it's in understanding what those rules are and how you can go ahead and, uh, understand what your world is so you can break those rules. Yeah, exactly. But it's still the same. It's still the same respect, even, even films that that do challenge things, and I mentioned sci-fi, and sci-fi is probably one of the best examples of of uh, narrative telling that you know is completely different, but it still abides by the same the same structure. I mean, whether it's the new Blade Runner, whether whether it's uh, shows like Westworld, whether it's I mean, shoot, I mean, those are just two things right off the top of my head. But I mean, um, or even um, uh, the Netflix show like Black Mirror, things like that. I mean, they're, they're it's different storytelling, but the, um, but it's still grounded in the same type of uh, storytelling that we that we've had for thousands and thousands of years. They've just done a very great job of doing something new and ref- and, and and refreshing with that. That I think resonates with a lot of audiences. Have you ever heard of heard Dan Harmon um, talk about his kind of story cycle at all so i don't know if you're familiar with dan Harmon at all uh community yeah um rick and morty yeah yeah yeah. i'm familiar with his work but i haven't heard what he what he said specifically so he broke it down really well i think in terms of sort of the the paradigm in a you know what i mean it's kind of it's pretty similar to like the three act breakdown but i really his example i think really put hits home a little bit more effectively so he's kind of always he's pointing out we step one is sort of your character is in it they're comfortable so like Luke he's just for example you know he's just doing whatever moisture evaporating right yeah <laughs> right? on Tatooine um, but then they want something and then they enter an unfamiliar situation they adapt to it they get what they wanted they pay a price for that and then they return to something familiar mm-hmm. and they've changed yep. That was kind of his breakdown, which I thought really, I don't know, I. it was a really good shorthand for understanding 
what all story you know what i mean you yeah. can kind of take that lens yeah. and apply it to pretty much any story yep whatever absolutely. the case may yeah. be i found that really interesting and really insightful especially for me because i'm not i haven't really studied you know what i mean it's like i i love film i love stories but i haven't really thought about the mechanics of it as right. much you know what i mean sure i mean at the end of the day what i mean it, it's all about human behavior and i mean just the, the just the force of growth and change in some capacity. I mean, so yeah, uh, that, that breakdown is pretty concise and far more eloquent, <laughs> um, uh, than how I could go ahead and phrase it. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what it's all about really. Um, cause yeah, I mean, they, they, they do go back to where they were and I mean, just look at Lord of the Rings really at the end. I mean, right. I mean, the whole thing, um, is really that, that second act of a three act structure, but the first, that, that first act is, all right, they're in the Shire, and then the final act after they've went through Mordor, they're back at the they're back in the Shire, and it's just how they've all changed, and that's, I mean, it's it's the same thing. I think one thing that I noticed that I find what I find challenging about screenwriting in particular is that it's kind of the nuts and bolts of like, you know what I mean? Because what is the the cliche is sort of show don't tell yeah, yeah especially particularly when it comes to film so figuring out how to craft dialogue in a way that's going to propel your story mm-hmm. um yeah and screenwriting is really trying to screenwriting is really all about trying to tell as much information in as little words as possible it and, and because you're the page that you're that you're writing is more of what is being seen and it where a traditional play is you are telling everything you're telling the audience hey this is what i'm feeling these are what my emotions are where in a screenplay your narrator or who you're focusing could be um the exact opposite what the character is saying could be the exact opposite of everything that you're seeing and You've you've got you've got great filmmakers that really do that when you're talking about challenging and turn it upside down. You take filmmakers like the Coen Brothers. Not necessarily saying that you have to create like anti-heroes all the time, but what they do fascinating and um very very specific to their writing is just that they're they're giving you information. Um, the world they're showing you information. You have characters that you're tracking that are the exact opposite of what. Um, uh, of what you should be following. I mean, whether it's Fargo or any of their work, um, I mean that they're they're just they're brilliant in that in that respect. I would have to say anyway. Yeah, because <clears throat> I sort of feel like maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm more of a storyteller than a writer, if that makes sense. So it's like I don't want to necessarily get bogged down in the mechanics of okay, I need this character to say this to this other you know what I mean I need to have figure out how to do this conversation it's like maybe I'm I'm more suited to here coming up with sort of the broad strokes of it but actually like so like maybe the concept or like that big idea that the film is trying to express in sort of the bare bones of the story but when it comes to the actual like minutia of the dialogue that's kind of where I I get lost you know what i mean it, what you're saying you get lost in the actual telling of dialogue right like the actual so writing for writing in different voices and different personalities for different characters what what sort of, what's that like for you Whew. um well i mean again um 
what I would have to say for when it comes to writing for characters and then writing for different characters is each character that, that you're telling, they that they are something organic. They are they they have their own drive. There there's something that is moving them forward. Um I mean, an actor, for example, on the other side will like uh you know, take Hannibal Lecter, right? Anthony Hopkins didn't ever say that he he was a bad guy, you know. You there there's depth to him. It's not just like, all right, um the uh snidely whiplash, you know, like uh just kind of like a just an animated villain. There's depth, there's uh, there's 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 something about that character. So when you're writing and you're trying to get inside that, you want to know even if it's a bad character or a villain or an antagonist in any capacity, what is it that's moving their narrative? What is, what is it that they want? What is the forces of antagonism? What is their intention? What is it that they're trying to accomplish? And what's that obstacle? Darth Vader, you know, he has what it is that he's trying to accomplish and there's something that's getting in the way of him. So understanding um, what it is that you're trying to do um, is just going to get you started. But I don't think there's anybody that really has all the answers. I mean, short of, you know, maybe Wes Anderson, I think is probably, <laughs> probably the best at, um, at that. But um, it, in terms of being a storyteller or versus, you know, being able to write dialogue, I mean, there are tons of really, really great films that don't necessarily have memorable dialogue. It, it, it's at the end. I mean, you have, I mean, there are plenty of great movies that have minimal dialogue. I mean, shoot, even just like Dunkirk recently. I think Dunkirk is a classic example. There's really no great lines in that film. Other, I mean, uh, but you, you follow it. And I, in fact, I was just watching the movie with my wife the other day. And, um, you know, there, there was a character, you know, that Killian Murphy plays. And, you know, she was just even like wondering, well, you know, he didn't really, he didn't really have an arc. And I said, well, I, 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 I disagree. I mean, um, you, I mean, when you're first introduced to him, obviously you see a, a shell shocked, um, you know, soldier, but you're introduced, uh, you're, you see him later on when he was on the boat and had everything together. And it's like, Oh, everything's gonna be fine. You know, wait for the next raft. And then we're, we see him again. And again, you just see this, uh, this broken person. And, um, and it just, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, I, I, um, heartbreaking really just to just to just just to see how war affects affects people and Dunkirk is just a great example of still being able to tell a story without having a ton of dialogue Wally is another movie but that one's a lot happier <laughs> yeah because I feel like I would be I'm sort of in the tr- in the trap of or maybe I'm con- overly concerned with all of the characters having the same voice and you know what I mean? Oh, having all your characters basically exactly, be, like the, be be myself. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, kind of like a Kevin Smith movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, his films are funny, but yeah, I mean, there's always a sense that each character is kind of the same. You know, the, the similar voice. Uh, like, or you know, you watch the Gilmore Girls or Dawson's Creek, uh, where they all they all talk very very smart, very fast, and very much the same. There's no real difference, but. Um, but there's still something to be said. If if there if if that's the world and that's the language that people are, if you can find a way to make it work, then it works. But I think that's a fear that a lot of a lot of writers have is how you know like how do you make a, a character different or what's the or do we have too many characters doing the same thing? Or, right. Um, you know, 
Uh, I mean, so there's a balance. You always want to just go ahead and just understand and under, what is the story you're trying to tell and focus on what that story is trying to tell and understand, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go this way and this is who I'm going to track. But, um, yeah, I mean, you just don't want to have, you know, if, if it's two characters in the same thing, write one out. You don't need to have two people reinforcing the same idea. The only criticism criticism I really had from the um, Rogue One Star Wars movie, which I thought was fantastic, I thought it was really well done personally, but I felt that um, there were, there were too many characters telling that uh, uh, going through that adventure. I felt that there, you know, whether I love the Force sensitive guy, but the the guy that was just like an a, like an A shot that was just you know blowing everybody up and shooting everything didn't really feel that he offered anything different than what the Force-sensitive character was doing. And I think that would have been an example of, like, you know, too much of something could be overkill. Right. Um, but, you know, great actor, but um, didn't necessarily bring anything different to the story than what the other character was doing. So we, we were giving the example of, of Dunkirk, and that makes me think, you know, Christopher Nolan often, I think, gets criticized for writing sort of flat female characters in particular. And that's maybe kind of what I'm thinking, too, is like, how do I how do I write a, a, a female character? Do you do you have a lot of female characters in your stories? And like, what is what is that process like for getting into a different, you know what I mean? A yeah. totally different experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, whether you're male or female, you're you're still you're still like, you know, flesh and bone, right? I mean, you're flesh and blood, whatever. Um, you are something living and if you're, as long as you are something organic, you have your own wants and needs and what it is that you, I mean, if you just write a female character to like, just to be the, just seen and looked at, you're not really writing a character. You're just, you're, you're just writing, you're, you're not writing character. You're, right. you're just writing, like you're just saying insert, you know, a female, but you're, you're not giving her anything to work with. And I think there are plenty of writers out there that, that struggle with that. I, I think, I, I don't think by any means am I a, a finished product. I, um, I, I, I do write female characters. Um, and I'm very, very sensitive, uh, to making sure that, that, that they are given just as much attention as, the male characters that I'm writing. Um, um, I did write a, a screenplay a, a few years ago um, that uh, the, the the female character was really like the driving force behind the story. And um, fortunately for me, I have, I've got a great support system in my wife who <laughs> uh, is a great like checks and balances right. approach right there to be like, Hey, does, is this, is this real? <laughs> uh, but um, because yeah, it is the other species and, uh, women know women better, but, um, character, whether it's a male or female are ultimately the same in terms of what is going to move them forward. And as long as you are honest and true to what, what world you're living in, you can be fine, but just definitely don't live under the fear of like, Oh, I can't write a female. Um, just, you don't look at it as male or female, look at it as character. Uh, like this is what this is what this person wants and this is what's getting in their way. And this is the approach that I'm going to going to go with that. So I think start, you know, starting out, I think the best advice is always, what is it? Write what you know, 
Yeah. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. maybe I wouldn't start out with that until I've like, you know, develop those, the craft of screenwriting before I would jump into like a, in trying to write out a fully fleshed out three-dimensional female character. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. It's just something I've always kind of been maybe struggled with yeah, when no. I'm just thinking about telling stories. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just trying to think of like uh, female characters in Christopher Nolan films. and <laughs> Right. Um, They're always kind of like a, they die almost in every film. I did love, what was it, Carrie Ann Moss in uh, Memento? Yeah. More, I guess she's like the one that yeah. didn't die. Yeah, the one that <laughs> didn't die. She she spits in his glass and it's brilliant. Um, but yeah, I don't, um, but she's, she's, she's kind of evil in that movie. True. But, um, but yeah, I guess they, a lot of them do die. Because hmm. what, like in, well, I guess even Memento, his wife, yeah, his wife the main is character. Dead. Yeah, um, and then of course, uh, 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 the Dark Knight. Right? I mean, she dies. Uh, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, the Prestige. Yeah. Couple die, right? No, well, uh, the protagonist dies too. But yeah, she dies. What else did he do? Uh, Inception. His wife. <laughs> his wife is dead. Yeah. <laughs> also, what? What? Uh, Interstellar. Too. Interstellar. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He just wants to kill women, I guess. Now, um, that's really funny. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that about, about him, but, um, but whether, whether you're as great of a writer as Christopher Nolan or as inexperienced as, well, shoot, I, I am for that matter. Um, I mean, we can always uh, we can always get a little bit better, but I, I do like the female characters that he crafted in his films, but, but I can, I can, yeah, interesting. I forget. There's a podcast I was listening to where they were pointing this out. I I can't remember which which it was though. It might have been the Cracked. There's like a Cracked movie podcast. Okay. And I think they'll do they'll do like a series on a particular director. So they'll have like an episode on tour on like th- maybe three or four of their best films or most known films. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of one of the when they were going through their Christopher Nolan month or what have you. Right. That was like a big thing. And I hadn't really thought about that at the time because I love a couple of Christopher Nolan's movies are some of my tops, like my top 10. Okay. Or maybe even all time. Yeah. So what's your, what, what would you say is your favorite Christopher Nolan film? Favorite Christopher Nolan film has probably, I'd have to go with Memento. Yeah, definitely. But the prestige is close. Like mm-hmm. those are my two favorite christopher nolan and those are like two of my favorite all-time films i mean those are like top five yeah for me yeah um i remember the first time i saw memento specifically i mean i remember when i saw the prestige but the first time i saw memento and it's just being like wow, wow yeah this is this is brilliant this is great stuff um prestige saw a couple of years later obviously and it was, i mean different movie but still just fantastic storytelling um and Right there in the beginning, right? I mean, you know, um, Michael Caine's voiceover kind of like telling you, hey, uh, this is this is how the story works. Right. Uh, and it, it has even, three parts. It has three parts, <laughs> exactly. Um, and not all screenplay. I mean, you could be on, depending on um, what what theories you've, um, you kind of focus on. Some people will say it's not a three-act structure. It's really a four- or a five-act structure for a two-hour movie. But at the end of the day, I mean... It, whether you you call it a three or a five act structure, the breakdowns are still in essence the exact same. You can just see where 
one thing is moving to the next, right? I mean, some people will call Star Wars a five-act structure, and you can make that argument and look at the different the different worlds as act breaks. And um, but it, I mean, whether you call it a three or a five, it's all at the end of the day the same thing, right? I mean, it's your your intro, your middle, your 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 middle part, and then your 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 wrap up or your conclusion. So, actually, that, that's something I'm sort of interesting. You could probably enlighten me a little bit because most plays are actually five plays tend to be a five five act structure versus the screenplay and the three what is sort of what what's sort of the difference from the playwriting standpoint in terms of like what are the five acts that's like you kind of described the three three act earlier but what's the five act like what are the extra acts so it, it's it's not really necessarily their extra acts and i mean it's not really necessarily the the way that i i approach story writing i've always really focused and really looked at it as a three act but uh, when i was going when i was in uh, graduate school and it was predominantly a theater uh program but they would they would talk about four act or five act and how it's different it's not it's just where there's i mean the the easiest thing really is when you were to just kind of look at it as television, right? Their, their act breaks are very literal. It's a commercial break. That's when the act is broken. It's when what we're following, what we're following had there, there is a shift in the, in the narrative. There is something that there is a fundamental change in what we've just watched to the next step. And when it comes to television, it's, it's simple, right? They got to pay the advertiser. So it's going to, it's going to go right to a commercial. So your 60 minute shows are going to be, you know, you're going to have your, your, your teaser and then your, your four act, um, four act, um, 60, 60 minute episode, 30 minute or your half hours. That's just a traditional three act break. But, um, for your one hour TV shows, it's gonna be a four act, but again, it, it's just going to be where the, and I'm sure there, there's somebody that can definitely say, no, 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 <laughs> this is what that is. But in my own interpretation, that's, that's just the way that I've looked that I've, that the way that I've understood it anyway. Right on. I mean, I was talking about Dan Harmon's kind of story cycle, and it's sort of, I think, uh, can have like six, maybe eight steps. And sort of, I guess those are like, I guess that can be considered like an act structure. But you know what I mean? It kind of fits within that general three act. Yeah. And overall struggle. You know what I mean? I guess it's maybe digging into this. You know what I mean? You can probably like get into the more specifics of like inciting incidents and. Yeah. And you. Um, like that. whether it's the hero's journey, writer's journey, whoever, and they, they list all the, the different, uh, steps of, of your character's journey. You can, you can break that into segments and call it, call it an act. And there, there's any, just go ahead and do an Amazon search and, you know, any number of books will come out and try to say, this is what it is. The Sid field approach is, uh, (laughs) that, um, that, that three act and the, what is it? The save the cat is another three act. And, um, but whether you're, whether you're using a three or a five act approach, you're, you're still starting somewhere and there is going to be that, that incident that's going to move the story forward and another incident that's going to move the story even further and more uh, and more conflict and more, uh, obstacles that are going to continue to perpetuate the story. Right. I mean, that's what it's all about is, um, you know, drama is, you know, moving, moving that story through conflict. And, and that's what it's all about. We want to see as a viewer, we want to see the characters that we love have to go through some type of challenge and then another challenge. And then we just want to, we just want to see that spiral of we're getting in deeper. We're seeing more, um, 
we don't just want to go ahead and just watch something and just watching them, you know, paint a fence and then the the fence is painted and that's it. You know, we want to see, all right, they're now we're out of paint and now it's raining and, um, you know, there's somebody with a lawnmower that's, you know, uh, getting in the way. You just want, you, you want that conflict. You want something that's going to get in the way and because it just makes the final product far more enjoyable. Right. I always think about this, the challenge of writing a character like Superman, for example. It's like how do, I, for the life of me, I need to read more Superman comics to find this out. Um, but I feel like when you have a character like that, how do you tell a compelling story? Because I think kind of the main idea, the germ sort of of storytelling, like we've talked a little bit about this, is like whenever there's a there's a change within a character, whenever there's growth, whenever there's that experience, like the when the character faces obstacles and grows and learns, like that's whenever you can do that successfully, that's the best kind of storytelling versus sort of flat characters that don't ever really change. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I think even kind of, I've thought about this too, is like even Luke, like he's sort of, he's somewhat flat in comparison to someone like Darth Vader, right? So at the beginning of the story, Darth Vader is like, oh, he's an ominous, he's like the evil character that must be defeated. But at the end, it's like he's his redemption ends up being what sort of the entire original trilogy is ultimately about is this guy who was, a you know, almost a messianic figure mm-hmm. that fell from grace but then was redeemed ultimately. That's what I mean. That's what really makes it so brilliant, really, um, instead of just an action movie is we end up really feeling for the character that we we. You know that we initially fear and you know what I mean? all the. It's the, like that roller coaster of, of emotion. It's like, yeah. Versus maybe someone like Luke, it's kind of like I mean, I don't know. It's easy to I guess identify with him because he's kind of our main protagonist. I mean, it, it's who you're tracking, degree, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But I think that's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, and regarding, I mean, sorry, uh, for for Superman, you had mentioned. Yeah, I just just thinking of writing a Superman like. Because I, you know, it's really funny. It's like I like the DC Universe films, at least historically, Mm -hmm. more than the comics versus I kind of enjoyed the Marvel comics more than the films ever. Okay. um, For the most part, right? Right. Aside from like kind of a few exceptions. But I'm just thinking, you know, a lot of criticisms are like the portrayals of Superman or, you know, people not understanding the character and what have you. And I'm just kind of like, what do you what do you do with the character like Superman? Who is this like embodiment of truth, justice and, and sort of the American way? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like how do you, ch- how does he, ch- how can he change? How can he grow within himself? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, at the end of the day, right. He's an alien. Right. And so his change, uh, because he, he can do anything he wants. And so if you've got that character that can literally do anything, you make him interesting by taking, taking that away or making him more, more human. And that is, um, I guess, I'm, you know, I'm, and I'm not by any means a DC universe, um, <laughs> right. uh, expert. Yeah, exactly. But having seen the Christopher Reeves movie and everything, I kind of, uh, I, I have a good idea. And I saw the, um, uh, the Dean Kane uh, TV show in the nineties, you know, Lois and Clark. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's really like his struggle is, um, I mean, he, he cares for 
for mankind, right? That's, you know, his truth, justice in the American way. But by um, having him go through natural human emotions is something what I guess, you know, can allow people to identify with him. And if you were to write that character, and obviously he's already been written, but if I'm just, you know, just how do you make him compelling is you, you humanize him. You go ahead and you, you find flaws in being perfect. And you find the, the flaw of wanting to save everybody and try to use that as a weakness. What is something that you can do to make his journey? I mean, obviously you can introduce other other aliens that are going to be equally as strong. Right. But still, like the the biggest foe that he's ever had, it wasn't General Zod. It's it's Lex Luthor, right? I mean, that's that's his biggest foe. And that's just, that's a man, right? That's not That's not another alien that is... His powers are increased by our, our son or anything. That's just somebody using what Superman's weakness is against him. Of course, obviously, you know, um, uh, kryptonite. But he uses, uh, you know, he uses uh, compassion and uh, fear to go ahead and try to, um, you know, ruin Superman's life. And in those pieces of work anyway, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that insight. You know what I mean? But just I maybe declare this will maybe drive kind of my point home to is a little bit you know what i mean where batman there's a lot more internal conflict within a character like batman for batman example you nothing know I mean? but internal conflict. exactly yeah which i think is really you know what i mean just kind of like contrasting those characters and i feel like the batman portrayals on screen have been a lot more successful than superman i mean cinematically batman i think is a is a more compelling um you know, character, at least, like I said, cinematically, at least, I mean, Batman is about as flawed and, um, I mean, apart from being, I mean, his superpowers being like ultra wealthy and that's (laughs) fantastic. Good for him. But like, I mean, he's as flawed as everybody else. And if not even more, I mean, this is a guy that is completely emotionally broken and as a character, and as an audience member, that's something you want to, you, yeah, you want to see, you want to see, interesting. you want to see, all right, this, you know, like you want to see that, um, that redemption. You, and we have, we have this natural thing that we, we feel empathy. We want to go ahead and what is something I can, even, even if you can't relate to being ultra wealthy and most of us certainly can't, um, you can relate to somebody that has had traumatic events in their own life. And it's like, all right, I'm invested. I didn't necessarily lose my mother, but I've, you know, I've had other, you know, like serious moments. It's like, okay, you've got me. I want to follow this journey. And that's, uh, and that's what it's all about is trying to find something that everybody can relate to, whether you've got a super, uh, superpower or not. I mean, you, you, if you can find something that is going to humanize somebody, um, that's what you're going to drive the story back to the future. Um, even though it's not a comic, I, I think of it as a story of a superhero. Um, but Marty McFly's superhero, you know, superpower is obviously traveling through time. But what it is, I mean, at the end of the day, the movie isn't about getting him back in time, right? It, it's all about um, having his parents uh, find that love that they clearly have lost when in the present day. And his what he's going to go ahead and do is actually have them rediscover what they've completely lost and brilliant so i mean he for me is my personal favorite superhero <laughs> um and when people say it's not really a, a superhero story i i completely beg to differ i think that's my favorite super uh, superhero story that's an interesting take that i've never really examined but man 
what that brings to mind is sort of, I, I feel like there's like that era of Hollywood that was so great. Like whenever we still had some great studio bosses in charge of things before I think everything got bought out and, and corporatized sure. to, to what it is now. And it's just like a, I don't know, so interesting that the way that, I feel like a movie like that now wouldn't have the heart and soul that that movie does, you know what I mean? Yeah. Versus like today, you know what I mean? It'd be kind of more, there'd be a lot more CGI and like the... Yeah, there'd be a lot more CGI, definitely. Uh, Probably (laughs) wouldn't have a DeLorean either. Yeah, exactly. It would be like, and so like they'd have someone like Megan Fox would be his girlfriend, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Biff would be like a real like giant. Like, yeah, and you probably wouldn't have he, some. Biff like, would be played by uh, what's his name, the guy, Kyle Drogo or something like that. Yeah, exactly. You'd have <laughs> the guy played. Yeah, like you know, uh, yeah, uh, Jason forget. Momoa. That's it, Jason Momoa. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> brought to at first. Yeah, yeah, he would be, but still, Marty McFly wouldn't be played by a five foot three dude. You know, like it just um, probably wouldn't have another actor like Michael J. Fox come around today. I don't think. Um, right, but. Everything about that movie is probably something you wouldn't see anymore, and I'm kind of kind of glad about that. The hell is that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's my roommate's TV. I don't nah. know. Um, actually, this would be a good time to break for a second. Sure. I'm gonna... So uh, I I don't want to get in too much of a rant about how. The corporatization of Hollywood has changed. I'll, <laughs> I'll try to avoid that and back up. Um, we're kind of talking a little bit about plot structure. And I'm kind of curious. I had this question. I didn't ask it earlier, but I kind of wanted to get your opinion as far as what can you maybe break down a little bit? The Where does something like Pulp Fiction follow or fall? Excuse me. <laughs> um, I feel like that's a hard, you know what I mean? What yeah. kind of structure is that? Is that just totally playing? You know what I mean? I haven't really thought about I mean, it's, that from a theoretical standpoint. I mean, other, like, other than being just purely brilliant, right? <laughs> right. But I mean, it still does, even though the, the narrative is, or like the, um, it's a nonlinear narrative, right? I mean, even though it's completely upside down, it still follows um, an overall story arc of what, no, admittedly I have to watch the movie again. I mean, it's been, I don't know, maybe 10 months, um, <laughs> since <laughs> I, since I've seen it, you know, right. I've probably seen uh, Pulp Fiction, you know, probably well, well more than any sane human being should ever see any movie, but <laughs> it's uh, definitely up there for me. Yeah, too. no, it, it's, it's brilliant. And I haven't even decided if that's my favorite film that he's ever done, but it's one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. But um, even though, you know, we are messing with the timeline, you know, we're, we're going like all over the place. We are still following um, a traditional still story arc. And um, I guess you would still say, I mean, it, it's, it's still a three act um, or, I mean, again, you can make the case for a five act, but I mean, it's right. still, it's still the same, same, principles that are really going on but quentin tarantino has just done a great job of just crafting a just a fantastic story with just a different trope and um yeah i think that's what any that's all you have to do you want to be a success just write your own pulp fiction um <laughs> good advice there you go um but 
Yeah, I mean that that's that's a that's a tough one to crack. I'm sure. <laughs> right? if, I'm sure if I you know really spent a couple hours and narrowed it down, I, I might be able to come up and give you something to really work with. But yeah, because I'm uh, just thinking, who is the pro? You know what I mean? The protagonist is it Butch? I guess would be sort of I'm trying to think of someone who stretches across all the different narrative threads that there are. Right, and he might be the. I don't know. For some reason, he's standing out. Just like I have, I'm not really thinking critically about it but he kind of stands out just yeah, i mean having I, seen the movie so many times you know what i mean well i mean he definitely i think would have probably the, the strongest emotional arc right i mean um you've got jewels uh but i would say that butch probably uh, yeah that's true probably has the the largest emotional arc of what we're watching i mean hell even marcellus has a pretty emotional journey that he goes through but um yeah when you look at it i mean yeah, I think you. I think you gotta. I got. Uh, yeah, I think Butch is probably your main protagonist, even in a, a series of an ensemble cast. Um, the the biggest learning that we had in the entire movie, really, and it, it's it's a great story, and um, just um, Christopher Walken nails the entire scene. <laughs> but like one of the best moments of really understanding who the character is and what their their motivation is is the telling of the watch. Um, which is one of the greatest monologues ever. <laughs> um, and that's, that's Quentin Tarantino just like, just kind of like winking at the audience saying, yeah, I'm completely better than all of you. <laughs> I could do my Christopher Walken. You, see. <laughs> you know, if you want, uh, yeah, I had, I hid this uncomfortable piece of metal in my ass <laughs> for two years. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing impressions. So, awesome i yeah i do not i I can't um yeah it's been something i've done since i was a kid it's like i would even like i'll even look in the mirror i'll be in the mirror and i'll just be like talking to myself like yeah you yeah you bastard (laughs) that was one of my early ones hey you you fucking bastard you eh yeah what are you looking at eh? looking at me uh what was it the um um god just because you're uh, De Niro right there, which just reminds me of the, like the, I don't know, did you ever listen to the Jerky Boys or anything? Oh, yes, dude. Yeah, like, yes. And like, yeah, you know. Um. <laughs> there's one in particular, there's one where they called this guy about an awning, and they're like, oh, whoa, I, um, whoa, what, ba- watch out, my back up over his fucking legs or something. <laughs> He's like, whoa, watch his fucking legs. Yeah, I'm calling about one of those awnings you got there. <laughs> when you, uh, you know, about three or four, uh, you know, three or four feet there. Oh, the guys, oh, whoa, my, <laughs> anyways <laughs> yeah you know um but yeah like impressions that's always something i wish i could do my wife is really good she um she's an actress and oh nice yeah she um went to um, a really good performing arts high school and then she went to ou for uh for acting and um she doesn't necessarily uh pursue that venture but she wanted to she could she's 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 brilliant um but uh, she doesn't really necessarily do impressions, but she does different voices. She can and, get in it. Can she really like get into another character? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's awesome, and uh, that, I think that was one of the first things that I'm like, yeah, this kind of hooked you. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> we were in a playwriting class, oh, nice. and um, and and this is just it. I, I go to playwriting classes because I like to write, and that's what I did in college. But uh, of course, so that when you have to do your plays, you also have to do readings, and. I think I was always the last person chosen to do readings. I was always the narrator or the stage directions. <laughs> um, 
Uh, just, yeah, I can't, I, that's not my strength. I can quote the hell out of a movie. And I've been known to actually quote uh, Ghostbusters in my sleep. <laughs> um, but, um, and yeah, my, my wife, on the other hand, she can, she can do a character and she can, she can do different accents. And I, I, I just basically stick at the, the really awkward, uh, faux, um, Australian accent from that, that, what is that restaurant chain? Um, Outback. Yeah. Outback. Yeah. Bloomin' Onions. Yeah. Right. No rules. Uh, <laughs> um, not bad. Not yeah. bad, mate. It's pretty uh, good. That's, yeah, that's, that's all I can do. <laughs> I, I come from a different country and I've completely lost my my Bermudian accent. I can't even I can't even do a Bermudian accent, um, which is very sad because uh, my my parents still very much have it. And I talked to my little brother and uh, he's got that thick. Um, it's not quite Caribbean, uh, but there's a little bit of like a an English meets um, you know West Indies accent that exists. For that sounds, that sounds incredible. It's really really <laughs> weird. Uh, it's almost like. And I apologize to like my my Bermudian uh, family, but it's almost kind of, kind of like South African, but oh, okay. but not not uh, you know not as um, guttural. I think is really the way that I would kind of uh, say like South uh, South America or South African accent is, but. Um, be, uh, but I mean, their their vowel sounds are really weird. Like they live off the heel, down the road, around a corner. You know, um, just a really weird kind of accent. So, kind of slurred. Yeah, you, you know what I feel. And I'm sure my listeners will disagree, but I feel like I feel like I've lost my Texas accent, and I I can't not do it anymore. At least not well. I find myself struggling to do an authentic Texas sounding accent. Yeah, um, you might be able to hear it more than I, I can because I, I you, you sound pretty non-regional to me. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to peg that you were from from Texas, but admittedly, maybe it's because like my my knowledge of Texas really only exists here in Austin. You know, I've lived here about five years, and um, yeah, there's so many out of town or out of state folks that yeah, have moved here. Yeah, I think I've only I've only and I, I feel bad, but the only places I've seen in in Texas are. Austin, Houston, San Antonio, and Fredericksburg. That's it. That's all. That's the only places I've been to. Um, I think I had a, I had a layover in Dallas, <laughs> um, but yeah, never didn't leave the the airport. So I, yeah, I, I know nothing. Um, but you Texans are very very proud of your state, as you should. It, it's it's not bad. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I I I hear no Texas accent anyway. It's funny. It's like I think that I've done. Because I get I get into these, um, I don't know if it's like a, I get into habits where I'll I'll have an accent of the of the month maybe or it'll take several months. So I'll be doing like a Boston accent, or I'll be doing a like a Jersey accent or something. Like I get into these like routines where I'm doing it all the time. Yeah, and it kind of a lot of it's driven by what I hear on TV. Kind of like when the Flight of the Concords was on HBO, it's like I was doing a New Zealand accent yeah. and then. Whenever I was watching Sopranos, I'd always be like, you know, yeah, fucking guy. Yeah, it's fucking guy over here. God, uh, like, <laughs> I love Tony Soprano's voice. And just, I think one of the, my favorite things about him, and it's probably one of the things that people really, like, get irritated about, is just how loud he would breathe. Um, <laughs> like, he just, he breathes like New Jersey. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, just very loud. But 
Have you ever heard a like a Pittsburgh or kind of like a mid Atlantic state accent? That's a weird, very very unique. Um, in Pittsburgh specifically, they have this thing called Yinzers. I don't know. If yes, you know. I've heard. Oh, okay, so I have a good friend named named John Loner. I'm gonna give him a shout out. Uh, but he grew up in Houston. Another uh, friend of mine, long time, but just moved to Pittsburgh. I don't know, probably like two two years ago or something. I was telling me about Yinzers. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're amazing. Yins? Yeah. Instead of yeah, that's just Instead it, of like Ewins. Yeah, like Ewins or Yins. um my wife who's from Atlanta, she'll go y'all. Uh she says y'all all the time. But in Pittsburgh it's Yins, Yins guys or right? uh, Yins guy. Oh, yeah. That's so fucking weird. Yeah. But they don't really I maybe I should correct myself. It's not even really Yins guys, it's just Yins. Like what are Yins doing? Like, you know, that that's what they say, just Yins. <laughs> um in the, the accent, it, it, it's fascinating because it's not, they don't just say yins, but they, oh God, I wish I had some good Pittsburgh. I, I spent two years when I was going to grad school there. I went to uh, Carnegie Mellon, which is Damn, one. son, I did not know yeah. you were this level of scholar. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, such a good school. Um, I'm forever in student debt for that school. Damn, bro. Oh, well, <laughs> trust me, I'm fucking still in debt for my Texas State. <laughs> yeah much, much lower on the uh, food chain yeah um <laughs> but it, it, it was a great experience and i'm yeah well I'm, yeah likewise likewise but pittsburgh uh pittsburghers are um yeah they're just great and sp- specifically yinzers if if you ever get the chance you should go to pittsburgh not just because it's a beautiful city which it is um very very underrated city but you should go just to get down get down to the south side and uh here hear um just some good really really funky pittsburgh uh, dialects you know if uh listeners will have to excuse us for a moment because andrew and i are, we're both lifelong braves fans so That's my true. my my only my like main pittsburgh memory is like what the 90 91 and 92 the like the nine whichever i think it was 91 whenever like sid bream Hit so you're mag- talking about the slide? Yes. Okay. Or no, no, it was fucking. Uh, what's the guy? Ah, I'm losing his name. It's okay. I, I, I'm I'm here for you when it comes to anything Braves. Cabrera was it Cabrera? Oh, Francisco Cabrera. Francisco Cabrera. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That Pinch was a, hitter. That was 1992. Uh, we call it the <laughs> slide. And um, yeah, um, it's crazy when I think about that game because uh, Pittsburgh had so many opportunities to close out that game seven. They were up. They're up two nothing going into the like the the ninth inning, and as I recall, and my memory could be completely wrong, but uh, somehow we got a you know a runner on base, and then at that we had like we had two guys on, and um, David Justice, who um, one of the one of the great Braves, and was on third. I love that guy. Uh, he was on third, and the slowest man on face <laughs> bird, face of the earth, uh, Sid Bream, was right. on second. He had like a full on knee, uh, knee brace. And this guy who had only a handful of bats all season, his name was Francisco Cabrera. And, um, you know, it's like, all right, there are two outs. Uh, we're down, we're down a man. And he hits this kind of like, um, ground ball in between second and third base. And, uh, the guy that comes up with ball, Barry, uh, Barry Bonds kind of, you know, go on to do a few good things, <laughs> uh, a few bad things. A too. lot of steroids. A lot of steroids. Um, uh, the most steroids. Um, <laughs> But he came up with the ball, and then you know he fired a perfect strike uh, to home plate. But he didn't really have the strongest arm in that. He was a little slow, and somehow 
some, uh, by the good graces of God, uh, Sid Bream was able to just slide in right before the tag was applied, and boom, Braves go to the World Series. Uh, we lost the World Series, but it didn't matter because that was just one of like the the great baseball moments. That really was one of the... I mean, I still remember where I was. Yeah. I was watching that game in my uncle's upstairs bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, I don't know, 9 o'clock at night or something like that, and man, just... I. Just incredible, one of the most incredible like comebacks ever. It was, and uh, you mentioned like about nine o'clock, ten o'clock, whatever it was, and you lived here in Texas. I was living in, uh, I was living in Florida at the time, and we're like an hour further, and so it was like it was past my bedtime. But my, my mother <laughs> right. was like, "You can, you can stay awake." And then finally, she's like, "No, you have to go into bed and everything." And I had like the door cracked at because she was still watching the game and everything, and I just remember. Um, when the when the ball went through, just like leap, like running out of the bedroom, like you know, like standing like inches away from the TV, and then um, the announcer just saying "safe," uh, just completely losing it and just going into complete mass hysteria. <laughs> um, uh, because only like two months earlier, I went to my first ever baseball game, and it was when they clinched um, their division to go into the playoffs. They had beaten the San Francisco uh, Giants that game, and. Um, but yeah, like I had grown up um, when I discovered baseball. I'm like, think you know, shout out to TBS for you know, <laughs> right. Seriously, <laughs> um, that's where my Braves that, fandom that, comes from. That, right, that, I think you know, uh, for a lot of people of our generation, if you're a Braves fan, a lot of it does come back to TBS because there wasn't really ESPN covering. Right. Yeah. Team. There weren't a lot of like baseball on. There there was no baseball on like network TV. No. At no. All. No. It was it was TBS covering the Braves and WGN covering the Cubs. Cubs right. Yeah. And the Cubs announcers were terrible. And the Cubs usually played during the day. <laughs> right. So um, if you know if we came home from school, the games were already over uh, because they at that time they didn't really. They didn't even have lights in Wrigley Field, and I, I don't think until like '93 or '94. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so their games were all playing during the day. I mean, I remember uh, what was it, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? I mean, he's um, you know skipping school, he goes to a ball game. Uh, it seems crazy now, like oh, why? How is there a baseball game in the middle of the afternoon? But that's that's how it was, uh, certainly for you know the Cubs in Wrigley Field, anyway. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you want to get me going? I, as much as I love, uh, right? I, I told you my. Uh, I, I became a writer because I realized I would never be a professional baseball player. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But baseball, we'll come full circle. Yeah, baseball. That that's at the end of the day, my my ultimate dream is to tell the 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 next Bull Durham. Um, that would be like the you know just a good baseball movie because there are there are so many baseball movies, but there are so few good baseball movies. Let's uh. To, fin- to finish up, let's let's totally. We're gonna geek out. We're gonna we're gonna talk about maybe some some favorite films. I thought I had been geeking out. Uh, yeah, well, let's, <laughs> we'll take it deeper. Let's do it. Uh, we'll totally. I don't know. There's total. Fa- I don't know. Fan service isn't quite the word, but that's sort of what we're going for. Except we're not serving the fans. We're just serving us. <laughs> us exactly. Yeah. All right. So lay it on me, man. Is it? I don't know. Top ten might be too ambitious okay that might take too much time should we say maybe a top a, a top five film list in no particular order i'm not going to put that pressure on you it's, it's a lot of pressure to put on someone yeah but uh let's let's give it to me and, let, and let's talk about that all right um 
Um, well, I already know that any movie list I start <laughs> will always begin and end one way or another with Back to the Future. I will, I, the amount of times I've referenced this movie in a day is just, <laughs> it, it, like, it always come, it'll always come back to Back to the Future one way or another. So that one, I probably put on my Mount Rushmore as my favorite film of all time. Really? I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's the greatest movie right. of all time, but it's certainly my favorite movie I've ever seen. Makes sense. Um, okay. and maybe, you know, I don't know if it has anything to do with coming from, uh, I'm, I, I don't, I won't ever say broken home, but you know, to have uh, parents that are divorced and really to watch a story about a kid trying to save his parents. Um, I mean, again, you can say it's about trying to get back to 1985, but it's not. That's not what the movie's <laughs> about. It's about saving his parents. And I don't know. That's something that I've really, really, I fell in love with it. And I thought, I, I'm like, man, that's brilliant. Um, and yeah, it came out in an era where you, you know, uh, the 80s were a fantastic era for in cinema, whether it was what Spielberg was doing, uh, whether it was what George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan were doing when it came to storytelling. I mean, talk about a guy that's very unappreciated, but extremely on top of his game if you're not familiar with Lawrence Kasdan's work but you should you should definitely look him up I mean he, I mean he wrote uh, Empire Strikes Back um, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, The Big Chill just to name a few movies off the top of my head which are all fantastic pieces of uh, of, uh, of drama but um, yeah but again Back to the Future certainly um, man I gotta say, Back to the Future Two, huge influence on my style. Okay, like the uh, the shoes that his son wore, like those. I forget <laughs> what they're even called, but like Nikes remade them a couple of different times. Are you talking about the uh, the the Nikes, the fucking Nikes that I forget what his son wore? You talking about what they're like, called with the with the the uh, the, the automatic lacing yeah, shoes? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm. I'm not embarrassed to admit this, but yeah, I was watching Back to the Future 2 last night. It was on, I don't know, HBO or something. And again, if it's on TV, any of them, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I think they, not, I want to say maybe like four or five years ago, they they, they tried to release uh, something of that nature, at least of the design. I don't think they were like full on, like, you know, could, you know, power shoes or anything. But um, but those those gray high tops with, those are awesome. Awesome. Um never been a huge nike guy but i love the hell out of those shoes those are awesome <laughs> i think they sell for like 20 grand yeah no big deal there were some auction change uh damn it i'm so mad i'm i'm a kind of a sneakerhead, so it's embarrassing that i can't think of the damn name right now <laughs> but oh well continue yeah um i have a guy uh, a buddy of mine I, th- I think you know him his name uh mike trotty he he's also very much a sneaker guy and um, he'd be able to tell us like right off the bat because, you know, yeah, he's all over that. Oh yeah. So. Trotty and I have, I think we've talked about those shoes. <laughs> yeah. Again. Yeah. You, you get, he and I in the same room and it, it's probably going to come up to back to future him talking about those shoes and then me just talking about the movie, but yeah, I might have to fucking Google this. Yeah. I might have to do Google it. this right yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. What were those called? So back to the future. Otherwise, it'll bug me. I'm one of those people that it does it absolutely bug you when you cannot think of something. Yeah, well, I mean, it's happened like three or four times in this conversation. <laughs> I need a I need a little henchman, like you know, like Rogan has young Jamie. I, I need a young Jamie.
Air Mag. That's what it is. Yeah. Air Mag. God yeah. Mm-hmm. Air Mag. <clears throat> it's funny, too. I think Nike was... I don't know. They're supposed to release some kind of, like... The self-lacing technology was supposed to be coming out at some point as well. Really? Yeah. Hmm. But okay, so we have... Uh, we have we've got Back to the Future. We do have Back on, to the Future. I'm Mount Rushmore. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um... I would have to go with a Bill Murray movie because I love Bill Murray probably more than water. Um, and for me, the best Bill Murray movie, I know it's a cliche, but you got to go with uh, Groundhog Day. Oh, man. Groundhog Day. That's one of the movies that I feel like I can watch over and over again an infinite number of times and yeah. not ever... You know what I mean? Lose. You know what I mean? Because you almost get something different out of the movie right. every time you see it. And um, and I, I apologize. Please uh, continue if you're because there I, there are some movies that I absolutely love, but that don't have rewatch value. You know what I mean? Because I feel like one of my all time favorites is New, No Country for Old Men. Yeah, but I feel like the rewatchability of it is isn't. It's you like know, the it's like hard the, to rewatch. And yeah, it's enjoy. like the replay factor on a video game, right? Like, hey, this is a good video game. You don't want to play it again. Right. Uh, then there are some movies that are so good, but they don't necessarily. You don't really watch them again because there are some emotional journeys that you go through by watching it. You don't want to watch it again. I mean, Requiem for a Dream. Oh, brings oh my god, that that's a classic example, isn't it? <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, I watch it once a decade. Yeah, like <laughs> the only time I think. <laughs> and it's so fucked up when I really like when I think about it like the only times that I've ever watched that movie again is if I'm like starting a new relationship <laughs> of, and it's like why are you making this person watch this you know like nobody wants to see the ass to ass scene if, oh. ass to ass. Oh, by the man. way Keith David what a phenomenal yeah. character actor yeah, that guy brilliant. is fucking great yeah start it I don't know what his first movie is but when I think of him I think of the thing um and one of my he's f- in the thing really? oh dude one of the greatest scenes ever is with uh, him and Kurt Russell looking at each other at the end of the movie. Interesting. And you, and as a viewer, you're like, which one of them is the thing right now? Um, that's a movie that if you haven't seen it, watch it immediately. It doesn't need to it's be. It's been a while since I've yeah, seen it. Yeah. Doesn't need to be October. Doesn't need to be horror movie night. Um, God damn it. John Carpenter has done some great fucking things. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So good. And the thing is, I mean, granted, you know, it's a remake of, of another movie, a little fun little like factoid tidbit, like movie nerd stuff. Um, in the movie Halloween at the, like, uh, when Jimmy Lee Curtis is babysitting the little kid and they're watching a movie, they're watching the original, the uh, thing, interesting. Uh, which John Carpenter would then go ahead and remake like three or four years later. Kind of cool. But yeah, Keith David. Awesome. Have a one of those things where I get Keith David and David Keith uh, mistaken all the time. I think it's the same thing that people get uh, Dermot Mulrooney and uh, Dylan McDermott uh, mistaken all the time. There was a great SNL bit about that a few years ago too. I don't know if Bill was, Pullman and Bill Paxton. Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton, another one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a funny story about the original, the Thing film. Is uh, this might actually tie in if you're a TBS guy. I don't know if you remember this, but grandpa the months the grandpa from the monsters yeah. had a show i think it was on saturday mornings on tbs it was like not monster vision but it was something like that so it was like these oh, monster yeah. sort of themed movies that he I, would play and he would kind of like play the host and they even did sort of a 
touched on it in uh let's see gremlins 2 yeah i don't remember it was, gremlins 2 oh, dude come on the new batch <laughs> don't talk about the new batch around me and like think that i don't know what i'm yeah that's that's my jam like honestly as much as i love good cinema bad cinema is really like my specialty you want to talk about like yeah like the burbs tom hanks <laughs> then i'll get started yeah but um i remember um i know what you're talking about there was uh I don't remember what the program was called, but there has been so many things that like that have existed. I mean, it was also kind of the inspiration for what that that the uh, the eighties movie. Um, um, oh my god, the vampire movie! I can see that the damn cover, but um, with Peter Vincent, um, Fright Night. There was this movie, uh, and man, whole, I haven't seen that in so long. Yeah, it's, oh. it's it's a really really good. I mean, sure, the special effects are extremely dated by today's standards, but. Again, and the acting isn't fantastic, but the the story um, is brilliant. And and for me, that's what it always comes down to is what I'm more interested in what the story is than what the the overall like dialogue uh, of the film is. And you know, there's some great movies with great dialogue, great movies with bad dialogue, and there's some bad movies with great dialogue. I mean, English Patient, um, <laughs> but. Um, I mean, so there, there is that balance. I mean, it always comes down to just, again, just trying to, and you can have even perfect talent and it doesn't mean anything. So like to get, whether it's a good movie, good film, good, you know, good play. I mean, it's, it's lightning, right? I mean, you don't know where it's going to strike. Um, and it's really all about just trying to seek it and try to find it. And, um, Yeah. So the show was Scary Saturdays with Grandpa. Scary Shows with Grandpa? Scary Saturdays. Scary Saturdays. Awesome. I saw that shit. Okay. So we've got... We what? have Groundhog so, Day. Groundhog Day. Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Um, both, both are excellent. I Just while you're thinking, another movie with infinite rewatchability for me is My Cousin Vinny. Oh, God damn it. So good. <laughs> I shot the clerk. <laughs> oh man, so many great moments in that oh, movie. Oh god, it, it's. Uh, I want to say, what is it, Jonathan Lynn? That was the uh, the filmmaker for that film. Um, I think he also was involved in some capacity to the movie Clue. Uh, but I, uh, I loved Clue as well. Yeah. Fucking Tim Curry and Clue is Tim just Cur- the yeah. shit. Tim Curry and anything. God damn. Um, I had a friend that met him uh, fairly recently, and Tim Curry doesn't seem to be doing very yeah, well. Yeah, that's what I've heard, yeah. Um, it's a shame, but yeah, that, that guy was fucking God, mad. Tim Curry is so great. Yeah. Like, I think one of the greatest things ever would just to be in a room and listen to Tim Curry and, like, David Bowie. Uh, when, you know, just to have those two guys. I mean, those that are two would of, be great. Yeah, just two of the most eccentric people, and just have them, just have a philosophical conversation <laughs> and listen to whatever... Because, I mean, they're also extremely animated and kind of androgynous. <laughs> right. Yeah, but um, God, those guys are great. But yeah, go My Cousin Vinny, just to bring it back a little bit. Um, yeah, when you talk about like the replay factor uh, or rewatchability, whatever, you know. Um, yeah, so good. Love it. Um, seen that movie way too many times. Too. I can watch, yeah, it's, it's one that I can watch anytime and I'm like, I can pick up in the middle. It's like, I'll do it yeah. often, you know. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could have an entire podcast just about that one movie. Right. Um, we'll have to. Maybe we should do one on my cousin Vinny sometime. We should. 
Yeah. Because there are some really fucking hilarious moments. Oh, God. And, you, and again, it's, you know, not, to, I know I'm talking about it. I mean, you can really break the film down and look at, um, yeah, just look at the movie um, thematically and, um, yeah, I mean, oh god that movie i'm just i'm just thinking about the movie and it's just so great you know what's funny too is like the tie the tie back into grandpa munster is i forget the fucking actor's name i'm it's talking about the judge but the judge yes fred gwynn. was yeah fred gwynn who also uh was in uh was it fred munster he was fred? herman herman that's herman right. munster fred yeah Herman-Munster. he also played uh what is it judd in pet cemetery ah yes the, oh uh, yeah about uh, 25 yeah. years ago yeah. Yeah. you don't want to go down that road <laughs> down that road yeah <laughs> um god yeah um now i have to put my favorite filmmaker of all time in um there are many many filmmakers that i love but then there's one that just 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 a little bit higher, and uh, that's Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, for me, and he's done so many movies, and, every, you know, the easy one is to say Vertigo, which is perfect, um, or Rebecca, which is a great classic, or Psycho, which is, you know, the just the the great horror film. For me, uh, my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie, because it was the very first one I saw, too, and it was one of those movies that my mother let me stay up past my bedtime and watch was rear window and i love rear window and um it's it's such a great great well-crafted story and i remember when i was a kid what was it universal studios uh they used to have like a bates motel not yeah like a bates motel um uh like a setup and you can go into the building and on the second level you would hear i want to say it was jimmy stewart's voice and kind of like set up like, hey, you know, there is a murder that's going to take place, you know, one of these rooms, see if you can find it. And they're kind of like setting up like a rear window and you put on like these little binoculars. And it was a really neat thing that they did. They no longer have it at Universal Studios, which is really sad, but it was super, super cool. And uh, rear window was just one of those great mysteries because I, I mean, it was something that I saw as a kid and I didn't, you know, when I first saw it, I didn't really uh analyze uh and there's so much uh subtext in when you watch any alfred hitchcock film um you, you've got the you've got the story that you're watching and then the little MacGuffins that that he likes to throw around really MacGuffins actually come back to alfred hitchcock films where the, the whole phrase goes back to his uh his films but um just the the overall like story arc of just trying to you know uncrack this case um of whether or not uh, his neighbor killed his wife or didn't kill his wife, just fucking awesome. And yeah, so that would put that on my, my my Mount Rushmore too. You know what? It's funny that you mentioned that because I'm thinking of the similarity you mentioned. Fright Night mm-hmm. is it is is it me or is there kind of a little bit of a a link there? I mean, there's between Fright Night and Rear Window. Sure, there's a total <laughs> link, right? I mean, he's trying to figure out whether or not his neighbor, mm-hmm. uh, but in this case, it's a vampire, right? For Fright Night, yeah. Um, but yeah, very much, um, that whole voyeur-esque uh, thing and, um, yeah, the voyeur and then you also have both kind of like an emasculated male in some capacity, uh, which is what, you know, kind of drives both of those stories forward, you know, just in, uh, Fright Night, just kind of like a, um, a teen not getting sex and wanting sex. So he's a little emasculated, um, and then obviously Jimmy Stewart having both of it or having one of his legs broken in that, you know, feeling that not, not like a complete man. Uh, but yeah, 
just just looking at the neighbor. Yeah, very, very close link. I don't know if I've ever put those two movies in the same <laughs> I know, sentence. Right? But, I just kinda, but I know. yeah, you might be onto something brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have we've got Groundhog Day, Back to the Future, Rear Window. We've got two two more slots to fill in for you. All right. So to, um God, I mean um my favorite modern day filmmaker, and I'm gonna put him in here. Um and I love all of his films, so I'm going to choose one. But my uh, my favorite modern day filmmaker is definitely Wes Anderson, and I just think he's a, a fantastic uh, storyteller and filmmaker. So, um, I'm going to go with because I've another movie that I've seen more times than I, I, I yeah. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to go I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with Bottle Rocket, believe it or not. Um I know Royal Tenenbaums is everybody's favorite and it, and there's nothing wrong with that because it, it's it's fucking fantastic. And I'm a rush, I, although I do love it, I love Rushmore maybe a little bit more because maybe because of the meta, meta aspect of I don't know, Max's plays. Yeah. I think that yeah. meta like element of it. And I think Wes really uh started to like really uh define his humor. Uh in a different way. I mean, really starting with that movie. Of course, that's Bill Murray, too. I didn't even think about it. That's another connect- another, Bill Murray connection. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's anybody better in the business working today than Bill Murray. But, <laughs> um, yeah, Bottle Rocket. I just, um, I mean, it was made on, like, a nothing budget. You know, like, absolutely nothing. And it launched how many different careers, you know? Right. Um, so we've got the Wilson Brothers. Yeah. Where was that? Was that shot in Houston? I don't know if it was Houston, but it was certainly in Texas. Yeah. Um, but I know that, yeah, it, w- it was shot here in the States somewhere. But uh, I just, God, like Owen Wilson's character was just so fucking amazing. And I just, I love the whole concept, just from like the opening scene that he busted, you know, he was busted out of a, you know, a institution that he was a volunteer in. Um, and then the whole 50 year plan. Which I think I think I would I would want to have for my own self is all right. This is my 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 five year, my ten year, my twenty, my fifty year plan. Um, <laughs> right. And of course, you know, any movie that has Jimmy Khan, a little James Khan in it, you know, I'm I'm in, uh, I'm invested in. But um, yeah, I uh, I love Bottle Rocket and uh, a movie that's going to say I want to see every other thing that this filmmaker ever does. As is the reason why I hold that one a little bit higher esteem. And Grand Budapest, I think, is a better film, but for like more like emotional, like what is going to um, carry some type of emotional weight. That's why I hold Bar- Bottle Rocket a little bit higher regard, I would say. But I think both Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, and um, Grand Budapest are probably a better quality film. But Bottle Rocket, I think, is definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. Nice. So that's on my yeah. Um, it's one I need to go back. I've I've started it, but I've never actually watched the whole thing. Okay, it's been one of those that kind of like start and then I've fallen asleep. <laughs> so I've never seen the whole thing. It's all the okay. Way through. I'm not offended. That you fell asleep in Bottle Rocket. <laughs> um, I think Wes Anderson is okay, and I'm really really jazzed about Isle of Dogs. I think that is going to be. Free. I don't know if you've. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not. I haven't heard much about it. So do you please, know, please tell. All right. Do tell. So, so he's doing another, for lack of a better term, fantastic Mr. Fox kind of approach, okay. another kind of like stop, kind uh, of, stop motion okay. animation. And, um, this one is kind of a, I don't know if it's, 
and I, I feel really bad about this, but I don't know if it's Japanese or Chinese, but it's an Asian uh, inspired kind of uh, story. And, um, and essentially this guy goes looking, um, is it the guy? Oh God, I had to see the preview again. I, like, um, uh, the animation looks brilliant. The, the cast is insane, but it's a search for, I want to say a guy's dog. And of course, as much as I love dogs, especially, uh, you have me, if there's a dog and I'm going to watch it, <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, even if I know it's going to end badly, um, I still watch Marley and Me, and I know what's going to happen. And what about Where the Red Throne Grows? Oh, man? God. That's, like... that's the first book uh, that I ever read, right? I mean, uh, I think they give that to us in, like, first or second grade, and I right. remember, you know, like, was it Old Dan and Little Ann? Yeah, um, you got it. Nailed yeah. it, man. Um, yeah, that, yeah, it doesn't matter. If there's a dog in it, I'm going to... I'm. Uh, I don't know if there's anything worse than a dog dying. Um, Seriously. Yeah. I, I have this theory that or strategy of like i need to buy another dog like there has to be overlap like i can't i can't have a dog just one dog and then he dies or it dies because then i'll just be totally inconsolable and broken emotionally i need to have some overlap that way i have another like i've got a you know what i mean yeah no i I know (laughs) and i mean this is getting a little too real i think about this Uh, i i literally i think about this very frequently about my my own dog oh, all the time no i, I it's I'm like right there with you um i'm probably more emotionally attached to my dog than my parents i don't know even my family like my dog is he's number one in my heart yeah i mean <laughs> they they're every they're you know they go through everything with you right i mean uh your dog's pretty cool i like your dog <laughs> um, i've had my dog 15 years now or yeah dude uh, i mean Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're only what, 35, 36? Thereabouts. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Something I don't like that. It's all good. <laughs> never, but, a girl never tells yeah, or a woman yeah, yeah. never tells. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've had him since he was three months old and, you know, he's over 15 and um, I've seen him, you know, like grow and get older and, and he's still here and I know it's coming. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, when you, when you buy the dog, it's going to end. I don't, I can't remember, I, I can't remember who was that. There was a comedian that said it very better than than i can ever put it but you're you're buying a tragedy it's going to end <laughs> and it's going to end badly right, right um and that's the case when you get an animal right um but you just enjoy those moments that you've that you've got and um it shapes you i mean i've had my dog through everything and uh yeah um now did you name him after dale murphy <laughs> yes <laughs> yes i did um a hundred percent um yeah. So yeah, Dale Murphy as a kid, I mean, he was my, he was my freaking hero. And the, like the saddest day of my life was when the Braves traded him away. And, and then what happens, the Braves ended up going on that, that massive, like a uh, 14 or 15 year, like run of going to the playoffs and Dale Murphy missed it by one freaking season. And I feel so bad because the guy, he doesn't get the love that he should. He, right. you know, he was the best player on a team that was so bad for so long and he statistically, his numbers in that era were as good as the other two best players of that era, and they get far more, you know, accolades because they had October success, and he never had the opportunity, and that's really what what hurt him. That and unfortunately, his his prime was such a, a short time, and you know, he he stopped being great uh, too early in his career, but doesn't change the fact that yeah, he was my hero and. Yeah, I named my dog after him, <laughs> and uh, it, it's a really funny thing because my wife and I have joked that 
not for our baby number one, which uh, we have a, we have a baby <laughs> coming, but our baby number two, uh, if, if and when we ever have that, she has given me like permission, uh, whether it's a boy or girl, to uh, to name it Murphy. But it wouldn't be named after Dale Murphy this time. It'd just be named after uh, Murphy, Murphy, our dog. And yes, just a little uh, Indiana Jones Last Crusade. I would name my child after a dog. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. The dog's name was Indiana. Yeah. We named yeah. We named the dog Indiana. Um God. Yeah. Um, uh just to just to break in here, my middle name is Dale. Has nothing to do with Dale Murphy, but my middle name is Dale. I did know that. Um <laughs> I did know that. I don't even know if we ever had this conversation, but I think uh, one of the times we had spoken, you had mentioned uh that your name was uh middle name was Dale. That's and right. I remember thinking, Oh, Dale Murphy. But I didn't I I wouldn't assume that you would be you know, <laughs> right yeah, that'd be that'd, pretty bizarre but that'd be really weird <laughs> um but i do yeah my number five is um kind of an unassuming uh, movie uh but i love it and i watch it as often as i can and um it just has one of my favorite things which is a multiple narrative and uh the movie about a boy i don't know if you've ever seen it but uh it's actually stars hugh grant and now that um, I forget his name, but he's in everything. But he was just a kid, but now he's in everything. He plays like the new Beast from in the the X Men uh, series. Nicholas Holt. Yeah, yeah, it was his first movie that he ever did. He was like twelve, maybe. And it's a really, re- um, it's based on a Nick Hornby um, uh, story. And Nick Hornby is a great English writer. If you're not familiar with his work, he's done some really good stuff. Um, and uh, About a Boy is probably my favorite thing that he ever wrote. And I, re- I read the book before I saw the film. And then they nailed the film. The, na- the, the film is just spectacular. But it's just this story of this guy who is kind of a hermit. You know, he's, uh, he's never worked a day in his life. But his father wrote a song years and years ago. And now he just lives off the royalties. And so he just lives his life according to units. You know, like going going exercise you know, like an hour is a unit, you know, so he, he, instead of looking at his hour, he just looks at things as units and he's sometimes forced to get into like the real world. And that's when he connects with other people and through a weird series of events, um, after, uh, pretending to have a son, which he didn't have a son. Um, he, he, he meets, uh, this kid and this kid is equally a hermit. He has no friends. He has no connections very socially awkward has a mother who's going through a world of shit and they they have this weird un unlikely bond um that's more like nuisance than like hey they're perfectly you know they get along but um i, I said you and mcgregor but i meant hugh grant actually i don't know if i said you mcgregor but it, it, uh, <laughs> whatever i said you, you said you grant man okay, you had okay. It right the first all time. right um but yeah, so Hugh Grant and Nicholas Holt, they they just have this uh, great adventure. But what's fun about the, the storytelling is, like the movie Election, which is another one of my favorites that didn't make this list, uh, although I'm kind of kicking myself because I would also put that film on there. Uh, I love the concept of multiple narrative if it's done effectively. Because uh, there's nothing worse than a bad voiceover when, like take, uh, take the Blade Runner director's cut, right? I mean, there's nothing worse than when you have... Um, Harrison Ford 
telling you what's going on. I guess it's not the maybe that yeah the director's cut is when Harrison Ford is literally speaking. Uh, that was a the uh, was that the theatrical <clears throat> that's one? That's the theatrical okay. release. Had the had the voiceover. All right, so yeah, the theatrical version. Um, God, I've, I've seen like five different right? versions of that same like- film, <laughs> and trying to get it. Um, uh, but yeah, like that's the worst, right? I mean, like there's nothing worse than an actor speaking to you and telling you things that you really don't need to know. Um, but when it comes to storytelling, it could be a really great tool if you have an, if you have a character telling you the exact opposite of what it is that you're seeing on camera or finding a way to create a good balance. I think Benjamin Button is another movie that has bad narrative, but in the case of a movie like Election, which has like three or four different narrators talking to you, and they're all more fucked up than the other, uh, is great. And About a Boy is fun because on one hand, you have this character saying, I don't need anybody, you know, like people being connected. That's stupid. It's a, it's a waste of time. And then you have this other character that's saying the problem with the world is that you don't have enough connections. You need, you you need backup. You need people to go ahead and get together. And it's just fun. There's this great juxtaposition that exists, um, between those two characters in the entire film. And it's great. Um, a simple movie. It's a good movie to watch during the holidays too. It's not really a Christmas movie in the classical sense, but it's kind of Christmassy, but, um, it's awesome, yeah. So, uh, about a boy is just one of those movies that um, I can just watch all the time, and I just think it's it's great. And yeah, and the screenplay is fantastic. It's kind of like poetry on the page, just reading it. Nice. Well, if you'll in, if you'll indulge me, I will I will go through my top five. But first, please I'm gonna, do. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a break, take a little pit stop, real quick, and then we will resume in just a moment. All right, we're rolling again. And I, I, I think I should make like the distinction that I'm saying these are my favorite movies, right? Um, not necessarily what I think are the greatest films, which is an entirely different conversation. Um, because nice. I can go on for, for days <laughs> about what I think are great films, right? Well, my favorite I, films. We can have you, we can have you back, and we can talk about the greatest films, maybe or something. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. But I, I will delve into mine if you'll, if the listeners and you'll indulge me for let's a bit. Do, let's do it. So uh, I would have to go number one. Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Hmm. Might be, might be my favorite of all time. Yeah. Um, pretty a pretty long film about the taking of I think it's Guadalcanal might be right. during world yeah, war ii yeah but that is true though but just such a i think beautiful meditation on on life itself and i think malik is at his best and i really think he's at his best in that film in terms of what he does with a more focused narrative or a more focused structure, because I think a lot of times his films can be so abstract. Yeah, very abstract and existential. And more yeah. like, yeah, a very like sort of a tone poem, a visual mm-hmm. tone poem, uh, something like Tree of Life. I mean, there's very like, you know what I mean? It's very little. There's not. There's no three act structure. Admittedly, necessarily. That, yeah. Admittedly, that was the one I didn't see because I when uh, when it came out and people, uh, you know, some people that had seen it before me, they're like, dude, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to really even talk about this movie right I'm like yeah <clears throat> just had seen you know, having seen other like terrence malick films that was that was one that just kind of just didn't ever get on my radar but then red line solid damn movie 
what a year that movie it got kind of overlooked really right. when it came out because it was like the same year i want to say as saving private ryan it right? was exactly the same year as saving private ryan admittedly the first time i saw the movie i did not like it the, but it's like the second time i watched it i liked it a little more and then yeah. the third time i watched i liked it a little more and so on and so on until now like it's one of my favorite movies of all time yeah just incredible so beautifully shot so beautifully acted i mean that's that's terrence malick though isn't it all right I mean, like <laughs> every I mean, it just he you can visually everything just looks beautiful you know um i'd have to i have to watch it again because it she's probably been maybe five or six years but yeah solid solid choice just to drop thin red line you know I've got the Criterion Collection. If you need to borrow it, it's Blu-ray. Nice, <laughs> nice. I might have to take you up on that. You know what's funny is, I don't know if you listened to this episode, but I did a podcast with Mark Bristol, who's a... I uh, did, yeah. So his story on, on... So he did the storyboarding for Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. And his story about Terrence Malick and like him kind of blowing off Terrence Malick yeah, yeah. was, oh man... Dude, when I was having that podcast with Mark, I mean, I'm just like sitting here. I'm like, uh, I'm like about to like piss myself. Yeah, how did how did that even come about? Because I, I remember listening because I, uh, when you had you sent that to me a few months ago, and I was like, holy shit, how did this like? So randomly, okay. So in grad school, I was in the mass communication program at Texas State, and we were covering South by Southwest Interactive. And there was a panel, and, and I, Mark was on the panel, and we had sort of a project to do a couple of interviews in advance of South by Southwest. And so I had contacted Mark about interviewing him, and that sort of, and he was like, yeah, man, I'm totally down. So once the panel finished up, we did an interview on camera, like right there in the room. And so that's how I met Mark. And then years later, I just kind of like randomly was on LinkedIn and I saw Mark's name pop up and I was like, oh, hey, Mark, I started this podcast. I'd love to have you on if you're interested and blah, blah, blah and so forth. And that's kind of where it started. Cool. Yeah. But it was super incredible because he also did some work for Memento, which is also, <laughs> I'll go ahead and- I'll put, put that one as number two? I'll put Memento as number two on the list. Yeah. Just a movie that totally- blew my socks off i think in terms of just the overall overall message of the film and the the storytelling the editing the storytelling i think were just really suited that story so perfectly and was just such a like you know what i mean such an interesting way to tackle a story and sort of like i feel like tell it backwards <laughs> yeah it's sort of i don't know i feel like it kind of like is starts from the beginning and the end and meets in the middle yeah. of the narrative yeah no it, in a way you yeah, know no, I mean? it does um and visually i mean like the story does it and then just visually how you're able to i mean and at the end of the day it's all on the page i mean everything that um uh, did i don't even know if like john was it jonathan nolan helping with uh, did his brother help with that or i know that Jonathan Nolan had written a short story. Okay, um, um, and I'm sure that they, you know, worked together on the on the screenplay itself. But I can't remember exactly if 
right. if Jonathan gets the screenwriting credit or not. Yeah, but what is great is when you can see when they merge it every uh, when they merge everything together because everything becomes color, right? I mean, you're no longer going between color and black and white. When the two merge, the black and white becomes color, and visually, that's one of the things that separates, <clears throat> you know, like a a screenplay from a stage play and things of that nature is because you are tackling what what the viewer sees in in what you're seeing visually you you are now changing that narrative and you're like oh okay this is this is interesting we're 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 we we've these are the rules that you've set we understand those rules now you're changing the rules a little bit but everything still applies and memento memento is just perfect and what a great and i know he had what was it was it following um yeah, following me, I think yeah. it was his first. And I know he had obviously he had done that previously, but what a great freaking introduction uh, to your work by, you, yeah, know, seriously. Just, you know, like, hey, you know, I'm Christopher Nolan. This is what I do. Um, give me all of your money. Let me make these movies. But God, yeah, Mementos. I, the first time I, I saw that, the first time I saw it, I was on a ship uh, when I was in the Navy and um, just got like a really, really bad like DVD, like copy. <laughs> and um watched it down like uh in our birthing and i'm like holy shit this is this is like next level this this is something spectacular i think the the crux of the film for me was when he is driving by he's he's driving in in the jaguar (laughs) that he's stolen and he like slams on the brakes and he's like in front of a tattoo shop yep and that's when he sort of has this moment of like it's like this real it's like the reveal of oh I'm I'm creating my own meaning yeah our hero for my life yeah our hero actually becomes the villain you know which, which I thought was just oh that was so like boom that was that oh. was that fucking just floored me I yeah. loved it to this it's, day it's, I love it yeah it's fucking like you know Bruce Willis is dead the entire time type shit you know <laughs> like like oh my god just that that moment where it, it changes the entire world of what you've just been seeing and that I mean that, that it's brilliant cinema I mean it's br- brilliant storytelling the entire way right I mean you're and then with the whole thing of Sammy Jenkins and then you, you try to like analyze well did everything that Teddy is everything that Teddy been saying is he actually been telling us the truth where we from the very beginning we're like don't trust him you know and we we find out don't trust him because he is what's saying don't trust him you know and uh, all the characters and granted he he's around a bunch of people that are all horrible human beings one way or another but um at the end you know like he's he's every bit as bad if not worse than all the other characters that have been kind of leading him astray because he 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 chose to find somebody that he very well and that's just it we at the end of the at the end of the movie we're we're left to figure out or the beginning of the movie did he actually find him did you know or did he find the killer did he not find the killer what 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 are we left to really believe at the end and that's that's neat that's that's good messing with your viewer but not in the sense of messing with the viewer, uh, which is one of the one of the things I find like the cheapest form of drama is just not telling an audience uh, something just to kind of like like uh, when you have two characters talking about something to each other, but leaving the audience out, um, you're 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 forcing fake conflict because now you're you're basically saying, hey, I, I we know something that you don't know. 
versus showing the audience something and then turning it upside down and saying what you know, what you thought you know is wrong. Uh, it's kind of um, it's kind of like a little parlor trick, but a good drama is something that like Memento does, which is just that, which is we're just going to turn your world upside down versus um, uh, the entire time, you know, um, Guy Pierce talking to somebody um, and basically, you know, like little whispers of what they're going to reveal. And then it's revealed to us at the end. And it's just cheap. It's just, it, you lose the, the, um, the, the authenticity of what you're trying to sell and just like forced, yeah, forced drama is just bad. And, um, but anyway, I'm going, I'm going, going on a different, <laughs> uh, uh, area there, but yeah. What I thought was great. And I love to delve into a little bit of philosophy in my thinking. And so, him cre- him sort of creating his own meaning in life and this sort of puzzle that he can't solve that was the element of the story that really resonated with me is like there you know what i mean it's like i have this sort of very nihilistic worldview of like there is no necessarily meaning we must create our own and so him creating this puzzle that he could never really solve and like deciding like oh i'm going to I'm going to do this sort of arbitrarily was just so like that just hooked me so incredibly. So that like moment when he makes that decision to me is maybe the highlight of that film. Yeah. And what, what what's it like uh, the final like now where am I? Or, uh, or I forget but it was something just kind of like boom. And then how the movie ends um, it's just after like all the, does the world <laughs> stop existing when I close my eyes? Right. Uh, I have to believe that there's something there and yet exactly creating like his own world. And then, Slams on the brakes, open his eyes, boom. All right. Just, oh, man, that's beautiful. Oh, it's, God, it's so great. It's, it's, yeah. There you go. <clears throat> just, just write that story, you know? Right. Uh, boom, you want to be a success? Just write that. <laughs> okay, so that we've got two down. Um, number three, I will go with The Prestige, also another Christopher Nolan film. We've talked about it a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. Oh, man, the, the ending whenever uh, Christian Bale's character is walking out amongst the the containers of all of you Jackman's oh, yeah. doubles. Yeah. Just, yeah. wow. Yeah. That was fucking incredible. And then he then they play, you know, he very smartly plays the uh, Tom York song, Analyze, <laughs> which became like, what's one of my favorite songs of all time. Just, that was just, oh man. It's so funny too, because I, I didn't see the film in its theatrical release, but mm-hmm. I just randomly, like, it was in college during, like, the Christmas vacation or something. I'm at home. I'm just like, you know, I'm off for the day, and it, it comes on, and I'm, like, sitting there on the couch by myself, catch the movie, and I was just like, oh, my God, what? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, and it's great because when you, like, when you, yeah, I mean, that's such a great reveal, but it really, really kind of hones in on that whole like deep fucked up thing that magicians and illusionists do to like try to with perfection to go ahead and be better than the next guy. Right. I mean, um, just the lengths, uh, that they'll go through. And in that case, what like Hugh Jackman and, you know, just they're it's just what, just a, a fucking sick, weird, unique, fascinating culture, like subculture that that is. Um, but yeah, that movie's, dark and twisted and 
everything that I fucking love. Yeah, in all <laughs> the right ways. Yeah. Right. What I loved so much about it, and there's a line where Christian Bale says he's like total total devotion to one's art is the only way to escape all of this. And when he says escape all of this, he he punches, he kind of like softly punches a brick wall. And I that moment is one that just really stands out of like, I so just identified with that sense of, yes, create as, as someone who like at least remotely thinks of themselves as an artist in, in some capacity. It was like, yes, that create creativity creation is the only way to escape the rock hard reality of the fact that we are temporal beings like mm-hmm. we will pass away into into the nothing and maybe there's no there's maybe no meaning in life but if we can create something then we can exist then we're immortal you know what i mean mm-hmm. if we can and and almost in sort of the greek sense of immortality of like if we can achieve something if we can leave a story then we're escaping like this this finite existence that we have was it like aristotle poetics <laughs> um but yeah yeah no um completely yeah that's awesome another one of my favorite moments in that film is whenever it's uh you jackman's wife has drowned i think it's piper Paribu, maybe is the actress and christian bale one of the characters so is at the funeral and he's asking what well, which which not did you tie borden and he's like i don't know and then jackman's yeah. like you don't know you don't know as he kind of walks out oh that's just so fucking incredible yeah god the movie the that movie's fucked up um just thinking yeah i mean like i said it's been it's been a minute since i've seen that film but um there's some great great scenes in that film and even the whole thing with like the what was it like shit did david bowie play tesla david bowie yeah. played fucking nikola tesla yeah, yeah, yeah. as well yeah um just with the the light bulbs and that that i mean visually because i mean there's so much that christopher nolan does in a film uh that just makes it so great and yeah like at the root like the the great uh, philosophical questions that are raised or um the uh just the messing with a narrative but the dude doesn't fuck around when it comes to like making sure that his story is told like visually spectacular and the sound editing and everything about it is just very extravagant, but not, not pretentious. I mean, there's something, it's a weird thing to, when you, when you look at somebody that the work that he's created that, I mean, it started with Memento, which probably wasn't made with a very large budget. I mean, it didn't have any, super huge names and there really aren't any special effects i mean for fuck's sake they have a polaroid that they use in the movie right <laughs> uh some some ink drawn and everything you know uh have a good henna you know artist and you can go ahead and you know you're on a roll but um but yeah i mean um everything he does I mean, it looks great in just visually um i think the prestige is like i mean i look at obviously what he did with batman and now dunkirk but the Prestige might have been like that first movie where he took uh, his filmmaking to just a different, a different level of like, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and, and I think that was before he partnered with Legendary. Um, when you were talking about kind of like big studios, I mean, Legendary is a studio, uh, or really kind of like a um, 
a studio that is kind of funded by Wall Street, and they've got a ton of money. And you can see it when you when you watch the Batman movies or um, Inception. I mean, just a lot of things going on. But whether he's making a movie for fifty bucks or fifty million dollars, the guy has done some really really great things visually with it with his work and prestige is certainly um, among the top of the other things he's done. Definitely. I have a funny Hollywood story to tell you. I forgot to mention this about Memento, but I read a book and there was a funny story. So there's a Hollywood party and um, I'm sure you know who David O. Russell is. Oh, yeah. Okay, so David O. Russell was really wanted Guy Pierce to be in one of his movies at the time. And so they're at a party and he like confronts Christopher Nolan, like a pretty like, you know, Christopher Nolan is... You know what I mean? It's kind of funny, too. It's like when I was talking to Mark Bristol, he's like the first time he's telling me about like, you know, Christopher Nolan's kind of like a really professional guy. He wears suits on set and like, you know what I mean? He's kind of like a very like sort of English. Very English. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. English kind of guy. And so, yeah, David O. Russell like confronts him at this party and is like, it's like a kind of a Hollywood story of like David O. Russell is like, I guess David O. Russell is kind of a manic sort of guy. Mm-hmm. You can even look him up on um i heart huckabees um there's a there's a scene you can even look this up on youtube with him and uh lily tomlin and fucking what is she though right yeah oh she's (laughs) fucking brilliant especially in that movie and uh dustin hoffman and like david o russell and lily tomlin are like going at it on set and like Dustin Hoffman's oh. kind of like trying to be like, uh, c- come on guy. Like he's trying to be the mediator mm-hmm. and they're like going crazy. Like there's a couple of scenes from I heart Huckabee's where David O. Russell comes in and is like fucking flipping out. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Which is really funny. I still have to look that up. Um, <laughs> did you ever see uh, flirting with disaster? Flirting with, no, no, I'm not. Oh God. I feel like um, I'm- and I could be completely wrong, but I, I thought that was David O. Russell. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm completely mistaken. I have to look this up. But Lily Tomlin certainly is in it. Um, damn it. Uh, bear with me. I apologize. Flirting with disaster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, thank God. I was going to be really, really good. When did that movie come out? 1996. Oh, okay, no wonder. Um, Oh God, this movie's well under my radar. Yeah. Um, and you need to put it on your radar immediately and watch it because I don't know if you will laugh more in 90 minutes than than it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen, but just the, the real quick, a breakdown of this movie. It's a story of this Jewish guy who's trying to find out who his real parents are. He's adopted and, um, his adopted parents are, um, um, Oh my God, uh, Peter Siegel and <laughs> uh, recently departed uh, Mary Tyler Moore, and and um, and they're just like this neurotic Jewish family. And he's married to Patricia Arquette, and they have a they have a baby. They haven't named their kid yet because he wants to know where he came from. And they've hired this um, this woman to go ahead and track their family down, and it's played by uh, Taya Leone. Um, in her pinnacle, um, and yeah, Tay Leone in, um, mid nineties, um, great actress, but, uh, a, a physical specimen. <laughs> um, 
and um, it's it's David so, Duchovny's wife, right? Yeah, David Duchovny's wife. Oh, well, or was? I don't know if there's something, you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm Who not knows? sure if yeah. they're still married. But um, I think that was the case. But yeah, so he goes. Uh, he meets a series of different would-be potential parents. And sorry to give any spoilers away, but he eventually meets his real parents. Uh, one of which is played by Lily Tomlin, and Alan Alda plays uh, his uh, his father. So you just and I don't know how much of this is ad libbed, but you have to believe probably about fifty to seventy five percent of the uh, of what you watch on camera. Certainly, when they're on camera, um, is ad libbed, and it, it it's just hysterical of just watching this guy just trying to find who his parents are, um, and just a, a sea of neurotic, crazy Jewish people, and. It was one of David O. Russell's like first movies. I think. Interesting. The fir- I think the first one was uh, "Spanking of the Monkey." Um, if you haven't seen that, not I a, haven't seen that either. Not a bad movie. Not the the the, the title of the film I would ever uh, <laughs> give it. But I mean, for lack of a better term, that's kind of something that happens in the film. But uh, that was that was like before his what was it Three Kings movie? Yeah. Uh, which put him on a lot of people's radar, but yeah, if you ever get the chance, if you can find it, because I don't know if it's I don't even know if it's available. Uh, on like on Blu-ray or whatever. I'm, it's just something I saw when it came out. And of course I made like VHS copies and then were able to find like DVDs and then make copies of it. But flirting with disaster, you need to see. And I think it was, it was long before, um, um, can't believe I just forgot his name. Um, ben Stiller, long before Ben Stiller had uh, his teeth done. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely watch it. It's really, really funny. I'll definitely have to check that out. Uh, another funny David O. Russell story is that uh, fuck I for ah, god damn it, what was I thinking of the story with David O. Russell? Ah, uh, yeah, this is gonna kill me. It's okay. I feel like there's a, there's another really funny David O. Russell story that I'm forgetting. Yeah, oh, what the fuck did he do? He did something crazy as well on another film <laughs> oh Mer- yeah Mer- i know Russell what it was I, or... I know what it was okay so on the set of three kings he david o russell got in a fist fight with george clooney because david o russell was being so abusive to the crew during the filming hmm. that clooney had enough of it and they like went to blows like they went to the ground and <laughs> a literal fist fight man i have to take clooney in that one probably right i mean respect clooney for supporting the crew. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'd never yeah. heard that. Yeah. Uh, I feel like there's a book that I read that it was kind of a, a book about Hollywood and it was sort of following like Tarantino and Russell and maybe another filmmaker, uh, sort of like that early kind of 90, you know, to like early 90s to mid 90s era, like kind of the sort of rebels of filmmaking at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin I forget, Smith. Or... I forget what, uh, Kevin Smith wasn't involved, wasn't really talked about in that particular book, but I'll, I'll have to look it up. Um, I used to own the damn book, but I must've sold it. I'll have to, I'll track that down and, and mm-hmm. get that to you. But um, yeah, pretty funny. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, not awesome that, you know, David O. Russell was being mean to the crew, but right. Yeah. Fucking Clooney. Yeah. fight on set man uh, can you imagine I, have you ever have you ever done any like on set pa work or anything like that um, for like a, a production of any kind i've never done like um 
PA work. Uh, I've, I've only done like PR work. Um, and when I met, got the opportunity to meet Bruce Willis, uh, when I was in my Navy, uh, days and met, um, Aerosmith and gave him a tour, but that would be like the extent, but nothing like super, super like, uh, weird where I got, I grabbed coffee for anybody. Um, so no, no. Right on. Okay, so what am I at? I'm at. Am I at three now? I've got. Yeah, I think, I we've think got so. Thin Red Line, yeah. Memento, Prestige. So we've got two more slots to fill. Uh, I will have to go with No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. Can't believe I didn't have a Coen Brothers movie in my list. I, I know, fucking right? love them. <laughs> One of my. I mean, I don't know if you're too familiar with Roger Deakins. He's a cinematographer, director of photography shot that film one of my favorite most beautifully shot films ever just it's a it's fucking exquisite just incredibly shot yeah i mean um i can't i can't really speak to cinematographers uh i mean they're i mean any movie as far as i'm concerned is far better than i could ever put uh, in my own head but um i mean visually the movie is fucking spectacular uh, structurally, the movie is fucking spectacular. Um, Story-wise, uh, it's fucking devastating. Uh, but it is... I mean, it, it's... And when you look at the canon of what the Coen brothers have been able to accomplish in their fucking ridiculous career, and we were talking about earlier turning stories upside down and different, uh, different structures with... Um, like different rules and kind of like changing things. I mean that they're they're a perfect example of if you were just to pick up a screenplay and read a Coen Brothers movie, you'd be like, whatever, who cares? But then you see their vision and you see what it is that they do. Um, I mean Wes Anderson. If you read a Wes Anderson picture, you you can see everything and everything is amazing and it's perfect and you can see his vision. But when you read the Coen Brothers work, you're like. What you can't really even make sense of it. They, they, they do things so differently and by their own terms. And Wes Anderson does things by his own terms. But the Coen brothers are just another fucking level in what they did specifically with that film. And you take, you, you take the novel that it's based on and you put your, the Coen brothers' uh, own personal touch on it. And fuck, that movie's, that movie's brutal. Uh, but it's so good and so good. And it's not necessarily a movie that I can watch a ton, but, um, when I come across it and it's on, I'm glued. You're not going to see me leave the sofa. I'm just going to go, I'm going to be like, shut the fuck up. I'm watching this. And, um, I mean, and Hunchiger's villain ranks up there among the Darth Vader's and the Hannibal Lecter's of cinematic history. I mean, just such a great, great villain um to that story and to this date i still don't know if there's another film that i've seen where the the protagonist dies off camera um right yeah and it's satisfying yeah even yeah because you don't care it's almost like uh i, I mentioned the you know mentioned it earlier and i mentioned alfred hitchcock the MacGuffin. um and it's almost like you know um the hero of the movie is kind of the MacGuffin. you almost don't really don't care what happens to him um and it it's almost kind of like even like a psycho thing where the the villain is now actually the star of the film and you're you know if 
you know, when you watch Psycho, you know, spoiler alert, but the, the hero dies halfway through the film and then we're, we're tracking a different story. We're now tracking what is going on with, with the killer and is, is he going to get caught in No Country for Old Men? You know, we think that we're following Llewellyn, but in point of fact, we're, we're really not, you know, we're, we're following a little bit more of, um, Shigur and even, um, can't believe I forgot his name. I can see his face. Um, the cop, uh, uh, the sheriff, um, Tommy Lee Jones, Tommy Lee Jones. God damn it. Yeah. Um, God, what a great performance for him too. just crushed it. Um, and then the final monologue scene at the end of the movie. But yeah, uh, great film, great choice. At the time, I wasn't familiar with Cormac McCarthy's work, um, so I didn't really know what to expect. And with the title, like, No Country for Old Men as well, it was kind of like, you know what I mean? Without any knowledge of mm-hmm. of the novel or anything. So I went in completely blind to the film, and was maybe that was the best part, is that I was just fucking floored, and the taut thrill you know what i mean the thriller aspect of it through the entire thing but also mixed with the philosophical themes just i mean that was r- completely up my alley mm-hmm. the sort of nihilistic themes that were present yeah god i mean the movie just cuts in so many different levels and you're not going to find me anywhere near a fucking coin toss <laughs> <laughs> right um some kind of moments that stand out is like you're talking about sugar is the moment where he's choking out the deputy or the like the sheriff with the handcuffs and just the look on his face and his mm-hmm. eyes that was just oh my god mm-hmm. that was incredible and then sort of sugar's talk with uh uh wife at the end like I... yeah <laughs> um, you know what i mean yeah um god damn and she's so great in that in that movie too um what a good actress too and we were talking about like writing for uh, females earlier. Um, yeah, great character. Just in gr- I mean, great actress, but great fucking character she was in that in that film. And but that scene, just when he, he's just sitting, and then you know, he's like, "Call it." And she's like, "Why?" And you know, like, um, just yeah. yeah. What I think is most impressive about that film, other than the cinematography and the outstanding acting, is that. Um, they did not use any non-diegetic music mm-hmm. at all, which I think is extremely impressive to create such an amazing, especially when a th- you know what I mean a a sort of thriller type story. You know, typically music is heavily impactful or heavily utilized in those sorts of films, and to n- not use any sort of outside soundtrack to heighten the emotional response of the images, I think is just a, a testament to how, how really brilliant the Coen mm-hmm. brothers are. I mean, it makes it really, really eerie too. And I don't even think that's the first time they've done that. Um, but like, yeah, like the use of like non, non diegetic is really, really neat. Like we're all the, everything you hear is what the, what the characters themselves yeah, exactly. hear. It, it's, <clears throat> It, and it, it's it's brilliant. It's not a trick or anything. It, it, it's just something that there's just this realism that right. exists. You know, the they're taking you out of you're watching a movie. Uh, you are now actually watching an event. You are watching this as it happens. And yeah, um, 
the Coen brothers are, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, shit. I mean, even if you go back to blood simple, um, I mean, shot in Austin, I believe. Was it? I believe so. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, they've been, they've been doing crap for years that, um, is just, they're visually, I mean, they're talk about, you know, a couple of guys that really know what they're doing. Everything. I mean, I, I, I liken them and I put them in the same sentence as an Alfred Hitchcock and that before they shoot, they know every, or seemingly, it seems like they know everything that they want to put on camera in the way that everything is supposed to look. Whether we're, 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 we're um, having kind of like a, almost like a dolly shot crossing a bar in, in Blood Simple and there's a passed out guy and the camera literally like goes over uh, the body of the guy that's passed out and continues to track um, just little subtle jokes like that, but without the use of any other dialogue and just like their little like nods, like, yeah, we w- we're going to go ahead and put this in there. And, but just their, their photography and everything that they do about it is just so clear, so concise. And just, I don't know if there's, yeah. Um, filmmakers that are more in tuned with how they want the final product to look than those guys. And again, and I love Wes Anderson, but yeah, the Coen brothers also are just geniuses at that. Having a film have a certain look. And when they're on their, when they're on their a game like that, um, or Fargo, um, and again, I mentioned blood simple. I mean, those are just three movies that are for me, like they're, 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 they're gold, bronze and silver. You know I mean? Those are just three of their finest films. I think it's hard to, for me. It's hard to top the Coen brothers as a contemporary film making pair or group or individual, what have you. Um, to me, they are just the 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 pinnacle. I think of being able to do something that is relatively. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily. I mean, like No Country for Old Men, brilliant film. Not necessarily a really art house film. I mean, it does have a ambiguous ending that I think challenges a lot of mainstream audiences but i think they're able to strike that balance of sort of the the artsy beyond kind of popcorn film with something that's really that's really deep and philosophical and just and challenging Mm -hmm. and if i had to model my own career as a filmmaker after anyone i think i would follow in their footsteps in terms of being able you know what I mean? It's like they jump from genre to genre they with jump, a, without any, you know what I mean? Without any drop off. Yeah, they necessarily. Drop, yeah, they sometimes drop from genre to genre in one film. Right. You know, like just uh I mean, um I mean, look at Fargo, right? I mean, this is a film that it was kind of branded as a comedy in many ways it is kind of comical, but it's also one of the scariest right? like uh it's freaking brutal movie. Yeah. Um, extremely violent extremely violent um but you've got such great you know and that's the other thing is they they put themselves among like great talent right and one of the great tools that they've used in their history and they need to use them again is fucking steve buscemi <laughs> right um just steve buscemi as I, I i can't remember i think it was carl in the movie i can't remember but when he gets his face like half of his face shot off in the film and um god that movie yeah but yeah, I mean, I remember when that movie came out. I'm like, oh, I'm going to see that. That because they they were just making fun of like the Minnesota accent. That's how how kind of the movie was branded. And then you watch and you're like, 
yeah, I mean, it's funny, but holy shit, this movie, <laughs> right? yeah, this movie is just next level. So it's just kind of like genre shifting, but from one movie to the next, whether they're doing, they're doing Raising Arizona, which is, you know, just kind of a, a farcical comedy uh, infused with a little Woody Woodpecker um, in there to, um, yeah. Big big Lebowski, 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 Lebowski. Yeah. Okay, I think we're good. Yeah, like Big Lebowski, exactly. Um, and oh God, what was the the gangster movie, which is so good and so underappreciated? They did this uh, Kansas City, um, Miller's Crossing. Ah, uh, okay. And that movie is just an out and out kind of like gangster movie, and just fucking great and maybe it's because again i go back to the talent john Turturro in that movie was great gabriel byrne was a, a was really really solid but i think the movie is really held together by john Turturro's character which um when he's finally he, he's this you know piece of shit and like coward and um when he's finally going out toward his end and you know that he's probably gonna die just like the just the, the guy like pleading for his life. You're like, oh my God. And just visually, just with the woods and then the uh, the hat flying off Gabriel Byrne's head. And it just, it's fucking great. Um, and again, just like just genre shifting from one film to the next. And then, yeah, they go ahead and do movies like, um, as we just said, uh, Big Lebowski or um, Oh Brother, War Out Thou. And, you know, just- Burn shit. after reading. Burn, burn after- is fucking hilarious. <laughs> I, you know, a lot of people didn't like it, but I thought it was fucking pe- great. A lot of people didn't like that movie, and I think just need to give that movie another shot. Um, oh God! Even uh, Hill Caesar, I, I, I liked it. I haven't. Gotten, it wasn't as great as some of their other highs, but it was it was good. Yeah, I enjoyed kind of. It was pretty funny. I I've only seen the first half hour of that movie like four times. Uh, it's just one of those movies that I've just turned on at the end of the night. I'm like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this movie but I don't get through it and it's not nothing against the movie itself. I just haven't, haven't seen it, but I've given it ample opportunities, but it's something <laughs> that I maybe need to watch at like two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Not at two o'clock in the morning. Right. Um, but it yeah. could be since I've taken a hard turn left in terms of my political beliefs too, that maybe it has a little bit of extra appeal to me. Now, now I'm definitely going to need to watch it. But, but um, I'll tell you one that maybe not be on your radar is the man who wasn't there with Billy Bob Thornton all shot in black and white. Yeah. Ooh, wow. Yeah. That one is incredible. Um, that is an amazing film that you don't hear a lot about. You don't. And um Francis McDormand, um, James Gandolfini, and uh, Billy Bob uh, just crushes it. It's great. Black and white. I, I don't know if I can think of anything that Billy Bob has done that <laughs> he hasn't been amazing, right? I mean, it, it's so funny because, I mean, the, on one hand, you think of Billy Bob Thornton, and for me, unfortunately, you know, part of me will always go back to that weird fucking relationship he had <laughs> um, with Angelina Jolie, which was just weird. But, uh, I mean, this is a guy that was in, uh, You go, I go back as far as like Tombstone when I think of him to, uh, to some of the other things and how he's just changed himself from one role to the next. And, they're all so great. And I don't even know if that guy, if that actor gets as much respect as he should. Um, I know it was really weird when he carried around blood vials. Yeah, they each had a blood vial. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> but 
Uh, he's done some, I mean, whether it was like uh, Bad Santa, which I think was fucking amazing. <laughs> and it's right. crazy to think that Bill Murray apparently was like the original choice. For uh, that, that would have been, I would like to see that movie. I don't know. That if would I, be a great movie. I don't know if I would be prepared for Bill Murray to have that many like F-bombs in a, <laughs> right? in a film. I guess that's true. He doesn't use a lot of... Maybe that's to his credit that he doesn't rely on F-bombs. Yeah, even when he played a gangster in uh, the movie... Oh, goddamn, I can't believe I forgot it. He played a gangster in a movie, and Robert De Niro was in it, and Uma Thurman. Um, it was a good movie, but it's one of those movies that's been kind of forgotten by time. Huh. I can't uh, even... I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. I almost think it's like something and something. Um, but it's one of those... It's, again, it's one of those movies that's kind of... You know, there, there's a... There are those movies that come a time that like just get forgotten and lost and people are like, oh shit, I completely forgot that movie existed. Yeah, Bill Murray did a movie with Uma Thurman and I'm gonna say Robert De Niro and it's fucking great and it's weird to see Bill Murray play a gangster. Uh, it was also the first time I realized just how freaking tall Bill Murray actually is as a human being. The dude is dude's pretty tall. What is that called? Yeah, I'm looking through his filmography to try to figure out. What I'm just typing in Bill Murray Uma Thurman, <laughs> Mad Dog and Glory. That's Mad it. Mad Dog and Glory. I've, that's definitely one I've heard of. Yeah, yeah. Three point five out of four, according to Roger Ebert. <laughs> um, but yeah, like De Niro plays a cop, and um, Bill Murray plays like a gangster. And if you can get your hands on it, you should watch it. But I don't even know where I was really going with it, but. Um, yeah, cool film, really cool film. I think I had a point to where I was going with this, but. <laughs> oh, well, okay, so I've, I've got four, right? Am I at yeah, four? Yeah, you're at four. choose a fifth. Oh, this is so hard. But I will go with, uh, Inoritu's Amores Perros. Are mm -hmm. you familiar with this movie? Yes, I am. What an incredible, I think the cinematography, the soundtrack, the acting, everything was on point. Because that came out in the early 2000s. And it yeah. was like back in my phase when I was watching everything I could that was not English. Because I, I felt kind of burnt out with a lot of things that were going on. And there were a lot of great movies coming out of Spain and, and France and Mexico. And um, everywhere that was in the U.S. And I came across that movie. And that, yeah. Uh, in your retail, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Gael Garcia Bernal. Mm-hmm. Stars. Yeah. And the other guy that, uh, hold on, uh, who else is in that movie? That's also, but anyway, please continue. So this one is a, another one that I randomly caught. Um, I had a Spanish class in my undergrad and we had to sort of write, uh, like a sort of, like I said, like a book report style paper on, on a film and a friend of mine recommended the movie. And so I went in with zero expectations and was completely completely blown away by the film i mean it was just incredible thought it was just superbly acted and just one of the most impactful emotional films that i've ever seen and i really thought that you know it was great that he ended up winning <laughs> winning the uh oscar for what was it, Birdman? Yes. Well, did he win it? He, yeah, that's what he he won. I think best picture. I think 
pretty sure Birdman won Best Picture a few years ago. It won, or <sighs> either if not Best Director, I think yeah, that's what yeah, Inarito won for Best Director, and it might have won for Best Picture. I think it like cleaned house until it came to like Best Actor, and then Michael Keaton got like shafted. Um, nothing, nothing against. Um, the dude that was in the the Harry Potter uh, prequel, but um, <laughs> Redmayne, Red, um, yeah, Harry Redman. yeah. Uh, but man, I felt so bad for. Her. I'm like, oh yay, finally, you know, Michael Keaton will get a little a little love on the uh, on the the ward front. Um, but Echeverra, that's who that's what I was thinking of. That was also in that film. Um, but yeah, that's a good film. That's a damn good film. It's one that I I've been searching for on Blu-ray forever. Is it not available? I could probably it's like one I've been looking for at like half price books. Cuz I saw that on Netflix back in the day and they may still do it, I don't know. But back when they used to ship movies to you, like when you're like, "Hey, you go ahead <laughs> right. three at a time." And that was one of the ones that I, <laughs> that I rented and fucking solid. That's a good one to have in the top 5, man. Yeah. You went with great films. I just went with a little bit more <laughs> of what is more like I can watch this movie all the fucking time. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty, man, I'm pretty much a movie snob. It's like I I feel like I'm maybe so close to the filmmaking process in terms of, you know what I mean, understanding the three-act paradigm and sort of the 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 structures that it becomes very predictable. And I like to be more challenged with the film. And so it's hard for me to lot like uh, things that most people like. It's like I will enjoy maybe one or two films a year, mm-hmm. and I feel like s- the last several years have been really weak with the times of types of films that really engage me. What were your thoughts on Get Out? Get Out? I have not seen that. Have yet. you not? I okay. need. I really need to. That's when I look back <clears throat> on 2017. I think there were a few really good films, uh, but what stands to me among the best is get out and right now i mean it's golden globes night and I, you know it's nominated for a couple awards and what's kind of insulting and i haven't heard what jordan uh peel's uh thoughts are on but it's nominated for like like best comedy or musical interesting and, and even though there's funny moments that occur in that film it's not by no means a comedy and um god damn that movie is good i i I don't want i'm not going to say anything with that with you know to like ruin the film but there's something very very great happening in that film and um especially like socially and in a society perspective that we, we 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 should look at that film um and really kind of um kind of focus on that but also as a filmmaker, there's something very Hitchcock about that movie that really gives it a lot of a lot of cloud and from the way I look at it. And I know Jordan Peele's obviously a very, very well established and very well acclaimed as he should be a comedian. But what he was able to do in a genre that we don't necessarily think of him in, for me, that was one of the stronger films uh, that came out in 2017. I mean, unfortunately for that movie came out at the beginning of 2017. So it's kind right, of forgotten yeah. a little bit, but, um, God damn. Yeah. You, yeah. If you get, if you get the opportunity, definitely give it a shot. It's not a perfect film. I mean, there are things that I would like, Oh man, you should maybe have done this or done that. And, but for what the film is, it's really good. And 
it's definitely more than just yeah just what the movie is at its surface and um i think anybody that's seen it can definitely you know agree with that i don't i think that movie was like a 99 or like a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes so um other people feel that that movie is good and it, it's one of those movies that it's worth the hype it's definitely you know like of of the movies that came out last year certainly my top two or three that uh, of the movies that came out last year i would highly encourage anybody to watch and certainly in a films like a film appreciation class definitely did you see mother uh i did wait mother that's a new aronofsky with jennifer lawrence no, no, and no, javier no. bardem no i apologize i was thinking of the movie um that was about a, a civil war uh person that was stuck in a, a place with women but that was not mother uh, but that also came out this year. But that was the the Coppola. I saw the new Sofia Coppola movie. But no, I did not see Mother. Very, very visceral type film. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard that movie pissed a lot of people I, off. I, to me, it was it's the best thing I've seen this year. Of course, I haven't seen a lot of like these types of films that were you know what I mean on the more dramatic, artsy end of the spectrum. And a lot of people on like. Reddit complained that it was maybe a little bit heavy-handed, but mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I mean, any film that can affect me on a visceral level in the way that it did, mm-hmm. I think is is worthy of of recognition. And uh, I don't, you know, what I mean, just to it's sort of, you know, what I mean, Aronofsky's films can be very <laughs> yeah <laughs> visceral, especially something like Requiem. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's not quite so dark as that but it definitely has a similar like visceral like gut reaction right to yeah the, in, the intensity of of the film style and perspective that he used i highly i would definitely recommend checking it out I, I i will i just i remember when that came out and people were thinking that i was just gonna be this suspense film yeah the, the marketing was really odd they didn't really find the best way to market it, so, it yes. came across as sort of like a horror film when that really wasn't necessary not quite mm-hmm. aligned with what he was doing and it's really really interesting it's conversation probably for another time on just how like marketing uh can affect uh, yeah, right? what what a movie <laughs> what a movie is and how a movie uh succeeds or doesn't uh in the whether it's a box office or just finds it finds a voice for itself and i mean yeah i mean it's a whole whole podcast by itself i mean shit you can just analyze uh, Blade Runner success after the fact versus <laughs> oh, when it man. came out, and that's an that's another Blade Runner. It's an absolute obsession of mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, God damn it, man. Yeah, it's so good. All versions that I've seen of the movie. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, Ridley Scott. Holy shit! What another just fantastic genius of a filmmaker. Did you ever see the counselor? The count? No, I have not. I'm not even familiar with it. Haven't heard of it. Uh, it's so Cormac McCarthy wrote the screenplay, directed by um, Ridley Scott, starring um, Fassbender, Bardem, and Cameron Diaz of all people. Oh, and Brad Pitt as well. I can't believe I haven't heard of this. Yeah, you should check it out. It's pretty. It's a pretty dark. It's sort of along the lines of No Country for Old Men mm-hmm. to a degree. But uh, I mean, a problem. Sort of. You know, not the, not a perfect film, but I I really really enjoyed it. But I like really dark nihilistic shit. So yeah, 
I'm going to have to, the counselor, huh? Yeah, the I'm counselor. Look it up now. Well, not right now, but yeah. It has some great, great, great lines and some great scenes, but maybe overall as a whole, kind of like, you know what I mean? That's what I have a friend that borrowed my copy of Blade Runner and I was like, you know, it's the pacing it's kind of a slow slog, but the just the, the like crescendo moments of it are so great that it outweighs kind of the mediocrity of like the film. Like you know what I mean? Overall, it's kind of like the first time. If I would have saw it in the theater, you know what I mean? I might not have been as impressed as it was after like rewatch and rewatch mm-hmm. and rewatch with a different perspective. Right. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah, definitely look that into that one. But anyways, man, we're uh, we've been going for a, a bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and sign off for this episode. But uh, well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. We'll definitely have to have to do another one. Maybe when Westworld comes back or something oh, that God, we can yeah. do. Kind of maybe we can do like some reviews or something. Episode yeah, that, reviews. Yeah, that's like a yeah. Uh, holy shit! Uh, the, the pilot of Westworld alone is worth a podcast. Um, yeah, we'll definitely come back to that. Sounds good, man. Well, thanks again for joining me on the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast.